Steve and I review Avison Restored on episode 14 of So Many Insane Plays. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of So Many Insane Plays. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi folks. In this episode, we're going to do our vintage review of Avison Restored. We've got some great cards to talk about. We're very excited. We're going to take a little bit of a different approach to it this time in our podcasting. As always, if you want to email us, you can send it to so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at many insane plays. into Avison Restored, though, we want to look back at our last set review and talk about one awesome uh, phenomena from that set. Steve, you wanted to talk about some stats from Grafdigger's Cage? Well, when we first podcasted about Grafdigger's Cage, I asked you to predict how many <laughs> Grafdigger's Cages you felt would appear in top eights uh, three months from then, mm-hmm. and which is now. <laughs> and as part of the context, I drew a comparison to, Snap, to Snapcaster Mage. I pointed out that as part of my set review for Eternal Central, that I discovered that I would think there were 77 Snapcaster Mage, or 78, maybe something around there, that had appeared in top eights, vintage top eights, since Innistrad's release. And given that statistic, and I also point out that that was the most um, popular card from Innistrad in terms of top eight appearances. Mm-hmm. So I asked you to predict, based upon that statistic, how popular did you think Graft Digger's Cage would be? And we, you know, so one of the reasons for this is because it's very easy for us to sit there and say, this card is going to be huge, it's going to be all over the place. Right. But when you actually put it in statistical terms like that, and specifically the statistical term frequency of top eight appearances over a discrete period of time, then it becomes very, very practical, a very practical question and one that we can measure our predictions against. And it's, where are we getting these stats from? Uh, from Morphling.D, mm-hmm. which they have a, aggregates every single top eight. They're board. a pretty handy tool for that. Yes. Um, and what's interesting is that uh, Kevin predicted that there would be 70 or more Scrap Digger Cage, which basically you were saying, this is going to be as popular and as successful as Snapcaster Mage. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, I thought it would be like a 40 to 50 cup. Uh, top eight appearance card mm-hmm. and the winner was neither one of us <laughs> it turns out that there were 101 decks that had uh, at least one snapcaster mage and appearing in top eights over the last three months which so is seriously impressive it blew it blew uh snapcaster mage out of the water in fact i i wouldn't even believed it mm-hmm. had i not seen the statistic the uh, i did a search for graph digger's cage and there were 123 decks Unfortunately, the Morphling.D search engine counts as separate sideboard and mainboards. So we had to find how many overlaps. There are 22 decks that have uh, Figures Cage, both sideboard and main deck. Which is which is significant in and of itself. Right. I mean, that points to another type of use. Well, the vast majority of appearances were sideboard. Right. Frankly, uh, I think... There's two multiple ways of looking at this, but one way of looking at this fact is that if there are 22 decks that have main deck and sideboard, that means there's about 22 decks that have just 
um, there, that means that the vast majority, the remaining 101, are just sideboard. Mm-hmm. And that only 22 decks or so actually have main deck Graft Digger's Cage. And you said that that ranked, Graft Digger's Cage had then ranked in the top 10 of vintage played cards. Yeah, for February, Graft Digger's Cage was the sixth most played card. Sixth most, most played card. And, and I guess it, it makes sense on one level. This card is replacing Leyline of the Void in a lot of decks. It's, mm-hmm. it's a sideboard hoser. And Leyline has long been a top five, mm-hmm. five card. Um, I think uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, I think I would have expected a little bit more main deck usage, um, not not in the twenties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but 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 if you compare it to past cards, I mean, a hundred appearances in top eights mm-hmm. is gigantic. Well, how many ley lines ever appeared in the main deck? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, very, very very much less than that, of course. Yeah. But the thing is that I mean, going back a long time, I'm trying to think. I don't know, and and someone can look through my set reviews to check this. But I don't know if there's been a card. That has in the first three months after its appearance, a hundred top eight appearances. I don't know if there's a single card that after its release, within three months, has a hundred top eight appearances. What about? Well, I was going to say what about Mental Misstep, but it took a long time for that to catch on. Yeah, I mean, Snapcaster Mage is, is a card you would point to, right? And it only had seventy, less than eighty. Yeah, Snapcaster Mage hit the ground running. It was very popular immediately. The the most popular or the most successful card in terms of top eight appearances from Scars of Mirrodin was. Hellkite. I think its numbers were in the 80s. Really? Yeah. It had that many? Yeah, wow. that was, and that was like twice as many as the next next most popular card from Stars. I had no idea it had that many appearances. Well, remember, Steel Hellkite was the star. Yeah, it was, it was big, but wow. But, but it disappeared. And what do you make of the counts of the two cards we're talking about? I don't even think Lodestone Golem had that many appearances. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly not Jay's. I would say that Graffiger's Cage very often re- appears in fours. And Snapcaster appears in twos or threes. Uh, I don't think so. I'm looking at these numbers, and I don't think there are there are very few fours. Really, it's like a one main deck, two sideboard. Interesting. Well, a lot of so people are not three sideboard or, or something like that. So people are not just replacing their ley lines with them. Yeah, I don't. I don't think this is really a a a, a, fo- a very frequent four of. Interesting. Very interesting. When I was playing it, I was using it as a four of in my sideboard, but but that's just my small sample size. So, Grab Digger's Cage, better than advertised. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll try to tell you what's, what's the real deal coming out of Avicenna Restored next. Let's get into Avacyn Restored. We've got five cards that we've selected, both through Steve's expert opinion well, as we well as you. yeah our we Twitter poll. You. So Steve reached out on Twitter, and these five cards got the overwhelming response. We're going to cover Temporal Mastery, of course, Tybalt, Gristlebrand, Reforge the Soul, and Cavern of Souls. In that order. In that order. I'm very excited about Temporal Mastery. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm very excited, though, not just because it's a time walk effect, but I'm very excited because of the interesting mechanics that it introduces and the, the, the debate that it's already f- kicked off in the, the community. The miracle mechanic. Right. Well, the miracle mechanic is clearly a potential mechanic for Eternal Formats. Absolutely. Because Eternal Formats naturally have a large density of library manipulation and that's already present in the formats. Mm-hmm. I mean, Legacy alone, you see 
brainstorm, ponder, preordain. Sylvan Library appeared in the last Star City Games winning Legacy mm-hmm. deck, and Jace, not to mention Sensei's Divining Top. There are numerous vintage and legacy decks that you could simply add miracles to, and they would function reliably already. Yes. That's without much tweaking. Right. And so it's very easy to activate the ability on these cards. So what is the process we're going to use to evaluate these cards? Well, like I said in the intro, uh, Steve, you proposed, and I agree with a nice little debate almost format here. Well, we'll take a for and against on each one of these cards. Okay. And for Temporal Mastery, you will be representing the four, and I will be representing against. Should I advance my case first, then? I think so. Okay. I think so. And which, which... Why should I play this card? <laughs> <laughs> and which, which are the questions that we had agreed we'd go through? Well, and it's very interesting, in fact, how the first one applies <laughs> to the Miracle mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> the casting cost. Right. So the Miracle mechanic is much like Madness, and that it is a conditional way to play a card at a, a more efficient cost. So it reduces the casting cost of the spell. Do you want to run down exactly how it works, just in case anyone's listening to this? Go ahead, go for it. The Miracle Mechanic, in a nutshell, is a spell has a standard casting cost in the upper right, like everything usually does, and it also has a miracle cost. You can cast the spell for its miracle cost if it is the first card you've drawn. If and only if. If and only if it is the first card you've drawn in a turn. And there are a number of caveats there. So that, for example... If a spell or effect would cause you to draw multiple cards, Mm -hmm. it has to be the first of the cards you've drawn, Mm -hmm. and you have to reveal it immediately Mm -hmm. before it goes into your hand. Before you even finish resolving the spell or effect that you're using, Mm -hmm. and or it goes in your hand, and you have to show it to your opponent and activate and pay the mana immediately. Right. So, for example, if you activate Bizarre Baghdad, and the first card you draw is Temporal Mastery, if you want to use it, you have to pay for the mechanic immediately. Uh. You do... So you announce it, and then you resolve the effect. You pay when when the trigger resolves. Oh, the sh- so yeah. you have to announce it. You, but you have to show it and... and so and, I misspoke. Yeah. You don't, you don't you put the mana... Right. But you have to reveal it and demonstrate that you have it. It has to still be in your hand by the time whatever effect you're resolving finishes resolving. So if you discard it to Bizarre, you can no longer play right. the Miracle. Right. Which is a good example of, of when you might want to, but then just choose not to. But a more typical example might be if you were to play Ancestral Recall or Brainstorm. On your opponent's turn, especially. And your opponent's turn. Yeah. turn. And if the Miracle card is the second card that you draw... You're out of luck. You, you're out of luck. Yeah, it will not activate. It will not trigger, even if you reveal it. You so, can reveal it, but it would be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, it would. So let's talk about, then, the casting cost of this card. Are you comfortable assuming that the cost is two? Well, yeah, two mana is clearly playable for a blue spell in Vintage or Legacy. Mm-hmm. What if you don't get to Miracle it? Do you envision ever casting this card for the full casting the cost? full cast is seven. Yeah. Blue, blue, five. Pretty rough. What's interesting is that I think that uh, Wizards has been very aggressive at casting, at, at costing some of these cards. Mm-hmm. Um, at their miracle cost, but not necessarily aggressive enough at costing them at their full cost. Would it have been a problem to make this cost only six? I mean, I, time yeah. Warp costs five, right? Correct. This card is worse than Time Warp. It exiles itself. Mm-hmm. Why couldn't this cost six? I'm with you. I believe that this should have cost six. I believe that the ability to play it without the miracle would have made a big difference. Right. You I don't want to be strictly superior to Time Warp. Right. I believe this card should have cost six with a miracle of blue, blue, one, for example. Well, then it might wouldn't be nearly as exciting. No, not, of course it wouldn't, but right. I think... I, I think six with the miracle cost now is perfectly fine. I, in Vintage, you're going you're gonna to be able to play this. Mm-hmm. In, in non-trivial number of games, it's full casting cost, mm-hmm. if you use it. I mean, mm-hmm. just... You can, you, can, you can get to seven mana with a lot of excessive moxin and soul ring and things like that. Mana drain. 
Mana Drain. I mean, there are times when I pay, what, six or seven for Mystic Remora alone. Mm-hmm. Mana Drain is another good example. And we've often referred to different robots like B- Mere Battlesphere as castable, quote-unquote, yes. wow. because occasionally that happens. Yes. Um, I, I don't think that that casting cost is, is very playable in Legacy. No. I would be very surprised to see this card ever hard cast in Legacy. It's, it'd be it'd be a rarity. I mean, yeah. it's not. It can happen. It's just not going to be. You basically have to have all of your men in your deck in play. <laughs> <laughs> the current trend in Legacy is to have very few lands in play, yes. even at the end of the game. Yeah, you, exactly. And that's by design. So I, I think it's disappointing. That they, but I, that they decide to make it cost seven for its full cost. I don't think that was necessary. Mm-hmm. But I think that the miracle cost of two is perfect. I think it's hilarious. They seem to be overcautious with the casting cost. Yes. So as to never cast it aside from its miracle cost. Yes. And then they make the miracle cost super aggressive. Exactly. That's what exactly. I don't get. Exactly. It's this dichotomy of an incredibly aggressive miracle cost yeah. and an overly costed regular cost. I just don't get it. And there are some cards that, that are miracles that don't have that problem. I think the, the burn spell costs five. Mm-hmm. No, th- sorry. The Wheel of Fortune, which we'll talk about, costs five. Right. And then has a two miracle cost. That's a big... It's That's a, a great comparison. Yes. So it struck, struck a much better balance. Right. Except that it was incredibly aggressive on the Miracle Cost. Okay, so I'm advocating that this card is playable. I think this card is playable, and we'll see a good deal of eternal play. Mm-hmm. I think this card is going to be playable for sure in Vintage, and playable for sure in Legacy, and potentially broken in Legacy. I think this card could be extremely good in Legacy, and potentially require a ban, either a brainstorm or itself. Let me explain why. First of all, the reality of this card is that players will be taking non-trivial amount of time multiple turns in a row. In Legacy and in Vintage, players will take three turns in a row. In Legacy tournaments and upcoming Star City Games opens, you will see games where a player takes the third, fourth, and fifth turn in a row. <laughs> and the opponent is sitting there, they've only had two turns, and then they're dead. <laughs> or or they're so far behind they can't possibly catch up. It would be very interesting the first time we see that on coverage in a Star City Games invitation, or, or open, I mean. Um, so um, the first thing is that it's th- this plays very naturally into the kinds of library manipulations that already exist in both formats. Mm-hmm. The specifically the predominance of brainstorm-like effects, brainstorm, ponder, preordain, and Sensei's Divining Top. So, for example, very simple example. Turn one land, go. This is Legacy. Turn one land, go. Turn two uh, land, go. On your end step, brainstorm. Mm -hmm. Turn three, naturally draw Temporal Mastery, play it. Mm -hmm. What have you gained? Well, if you play a turn one Delver, (laughs) you probably, you get an extra attack with it, you get an extra land drop, you get an extra turn, you get an extra card to replace itself, you will have more cards in hand, more attack steps, more tempo. You'll be near setting up. You don't necessarily even chain these. If you chain them every other turn, how can your opponent possibly win? Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't need to do, you don't need to, you know, do what I just described, which is turn one land, let's say Delver, turn two land, brainstorm, turn three miracle, t- time walk. If you go turn three miracle time walk, and then you take a fourth turn, then you pass, then your opponent gets their third turn, mm-hmm. and then you next turn miracle time walk after doing a ponder, top, or brainstorm, then your opponent is so far behind in a format that is so tempo oriented, I don't see how they could possibly win. 
especially if you either have creatures and or you are accelerating yourself toward Jace a turn ahead of schedule. Exactly. And and after you have Jace on the table, just never mind. And if you can do this with like an extra a Tarmogoyf or two on the ta- table, I mean, mm-hmm. given I mean, if you just look at the the decks in Legacy, they're so tempo oriented. Mm-hmm. This card is an unbelievably strong fit for the kinds of decks that see play in Legacy. There's no need for Graveyard Recursion in Legacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's Snapcaster Mage. But beyond that, I mean, it's not like you're Yawgmoth's willing to regrow thing like you are in Vintage. Right. So this card is going to be... Inc- and, and since Brainstorm is legal and unrestricted <laughs> in Legacy, there's no, there's no drawback to having drawn this naturally. So the one problem with this card, someone could argue, is that what if you draw it naturally? Well, I would, I would be aggressive and play four of these in Legacy. I, I can't even imagine playing Legacy without playing four of these, or at least trying. I mean, just it sounds so exciting. In Vintage, I think the card is going to be is potentially very strong as well. Um, again, it goes back to the fact that Time Walk is one of the most powerful effects there is. People underestimate Time Walk radically. And it all goes down to, it's not just, people say, well, I, all you get is one land drop, or all you get is an extra attack. It's yes, and, yes, and. Yes, and I get an extra draw. I mean, it is, it's so huge. I think one of the most exciting things to pair it with is going to be Gush. Because the land drop then lost becomes irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you can Gush, uh, for example, on your... Um, uh, if, you, if you Miracle Time Walk, uh, it, either in your draw step or... With a gush, you get to immediately recoup that land that land returning mm-hmm. with two extra cards. And the and if you have a creature on the table, the tempo is huge. So I just I think this card is going to be excellent, and I think it's going to see it's going to be played in vintage. And it's going to be broken in legacy. All right. <laughs> I have the unenviable position of being against this card <laughs> in this case, and my heart's not in it. But I will say. When I when we uh, sorry chose sides on this particular card, I completely forgot about Legacy. I was only thinking about Vintage. I don't have much to say against the Legacy front because I think it's as you said more synergistic there. But in the against spirit of things, I will say that I believe a lot of people will build bad temporal mastery decks to start with. I have already fallen victim to this just in trying to shoehorn everything I thought was cool into a Vintage deck and found out that. I could reliably cast Temporal Mastery, and it wasn't very good, <laughs> because I didn't build in enough ways to actually abuse it. Mm-hmm. If all you're doing is is preordaining and putting Temporal Mastery on top, and then playing an, an extra land and saying go, you're not maximizing its value. And I believe that a lot of people early on will fall victim to that. You'll see lots of bad Temporal Mastery plays. You'll see lots of people playing it at the wrong time, too early, too late... Uh, there's a lot of skill involved in setting it up because you have so much manipulation in these formats. Ultimately, I don't think it's going to be a big deal in Vintage. I think it'll be played. I don't think... I think it's go- it has its own costs. It has its own costs in terms of deck space, which is increasingly at a premium. Mm-hmm. It causes you, if you want to be a Noble Fish-style aggro deck, to get the most tempo out of it, meaning beat down and get ahead of the game it's going to cause some of those decks to put too much manipulation in. Mm-hmm. It's a Noble Fish deck that goes... don't use very much. Right, a Noble Fish deck that goes turn one preordain, turn two, oh, look, I don't have a guy, uh, go, <laughs> holding up days with two lands in play. 
that deck it just lost a lot of its potency as opposed to having more guys. <clears throat> That's why I say a lot of people I think are going to misuse and poorly build decks with this card. Um, but again, my heart's not in it. I think this card is very playable. Well, let me let me then try and try and take the negative position. Um, I just I don't see how this card won't be amazing in Legacy. <laughs> so I'm not even going to go there. Right. This card is broken in Legacy. The only I mean, some of the arguments against it in Legacy look like, well, you don't want to waste your brainstorm putting this back because you want to put other cards back. <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> give me a break. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you it's very easy. You put back an additional land, and mm-hmm. you put back Temporal Mastery, Mastery on top of this. You untap, you play Temporal Mastery, you fetch, you fetch, mm-hmm. and you shuffle so you don't have to draw the extra land. Both formats are now very familiar with having a dead dead card, dead draws. Right. In Vintage, it's commonplace. very used to drawing the Colossus, and Legacy, very used to drawing the Progenitus mm-hmm. for the Natural Order decks. And Oath decks and Vintage, very used to drawing an Oath creature, even with the restriction <clears throat> of Brainstorm. Um... I think Temporal Mastery decks will want to accelerate into a Jace, mm-hmm. so that will be a common strategy. Jace is good both before and after. I think you've identified that. Mm-hmm. It helps you accelerate towards it, um, and helps you manipulate your library to continue to abuse future Temporal Masteries. It makes it easier to get to, and worse when you do, for your opponent. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jace, Jace does everything do this card have. wants to do. Yes. Um, the, 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 the problem, I do think there are a couple problems with Temporal Mastery. First, Ponder and Brainstorm, which are the two most effective ways to manipulate this card, are restricted. Mm-hmm. Preordain is not as good. Because preordain, if you preordain you see a Temporal Mastery, what do you do? You have to put both cards back. Yes. Which is a problem. If you, Especially if you want the other card. You don't have a choice, though. You don't have a choice because you have to draw the other card and put it in your hand. Right. Um, and so preordain is not nearly as effective mm-hmm. as Ponder or Brainstorm, which are the gold standards here. Fortunately, we have top. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, we have Sensei's Divining Top, which is not heavily played in Vintage. It's usually like a one-of if it's played at all, but this that's the gold standard for this card, is Sensei's Divining Top. Right. That's the card where you can really begin manipulating. Turn one, mox something, top, play my land and top, say go. Next turn, time wa- or Temporal Mastery off the top. Yes. Play another land, top again. Yes. Next turn, maybe mastery again, or hey, look, I'm at four mana for Jace yes. on my second turn, exactly. effectively. Top is top is the card that really seems. But the thing is, and I I don't know, top seems to have disappeared from Legacy somewhat. I mean, yeah. Well, it has. It's in almost direct proportion with counterbalance, which yes. goes up and down. Exactly. So counterbalance has not been uh, heavily played recently, but uh, it's always potential to return. Uh-huh. If it does, you know, the, the immediate deck I thought was very exciting. In Legacy would be a counterbalance deck with with four tops and four counterbalance. Mm-hmm. I mean, with with four of this card, it seems absolutely insane. I mean, I mean, you just get so far ahead with counterbalance and control. I there's one other, but then the the Cavern of Souls card makes me less excited about counterbalance. <laughs> but well, let's not let's not go there yet. I have one other contribution to the the against case, and that is this: if you build your deck to maximize this card, you will have a lot of redundant effects that have to do with searching and manipulating your library. It is easy to prey upon decks that do too much of that. Sure. Especially with white or white X aggro decks. Like and, Maiden Arbiter, things like yeah, that. Yeah, you could make yourself even more susceptible to other right. disruption effects. I don't think that the cards like Personal Tutor are are, are good. Yeah. Kevin no. just. Shoot. <laughs> Wave my hand dismissively. No. <laughs> yes. Personal Tutor is nothing. If you have those cards and they're still worth more than five bucks, sell, sell now. <laughs> uh, I, I, I concur. Yeah. 
So the, the other thing is one potential way to gain value is like the dark confidant, but this is a bad, a terrible dark confidant flip. You're right. So I don't, I don't see a lot of value there. The place that I do see value is, is again with gush because temporal mastery will help you recoup the land losses mm -hmm. and help you build to the critical mass that you want. And Gush will help you find it. And Gush will help you find it. And you can run a couple of beatdown creatures, including Trigon Predators and mm -hmm. maybe a couple of Goyce. Lotus Cobra, maybe. Or Lotus Cobra, or mm -hmm. things like that. I mean, mm -hmm. those are all great examples. Lotus Cobra is good with Temporal Mastery because you just get more mana out of that guy the more turns you have. Exactly. And, and Lotus Cobra supports Jace, so that might be a, a home for that as well. Right. Uh, I, again, I think that the question is, is this playable? This is vintage playable. Definitely. The second question, though, is where will the seat play? <laughs> uh, and and I think we, in vintage, less certain. In legacy, it can seat play a lot of places. You, shall we go on record with three months from now, how many will have been in top eights oh. for each of these cards? I think we should. Okay, What's, sure. Why not? Why not? Sure, why not? Um, what, do you, what do you expect? I expect, in terms of top eights, using the same metric we've been using for Snapcaster and Cage, I would say... 40. 40 top 8s. Wow. I'm going to say 28 top 8s. <laughs> nice. Price is right? That <laughs> will have temporal mastery. Okay. You should, you should make a note so we don't forget. It could, be, it could be less. I'll remember. Okay. Enough on temporal mastery then? Sure. Next up we have Tybalt the Fiend-Blooded. The very famous and already much maligned two-casting cost Planeswalker. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna stop. I just want to go back to the the temporal mastery thing on legacy for a second. Okay. I, I mean, one of the things that the vintage has taught us in the last three years, four years now, is that taking extra turns is awesome, and the conditionality it doesn't matter that much. I mean, right now one of the dominant strategies in, in, in vintage involves taking two basically useless cards. That are usual, usually singletons, mm -hmm. putting them together to take infinite turns. That's how <laughs> valuable additional turns is. I mean, so if there's any doubt from vintage players or legacy players about how valuable taking additional turns is, mm -hmm. Time Vault experience should dispel it, right? I mean, that that shows you that you can have highly conditional ways to take turns, and it still produces tremendous value. the The other thing, though, I, I think that that I think that has some relevance. But the other thing is, I think. People should not underestimate, and I already said it, but I think it bears repeating, how devastating it will be for an opponent to take significantly more turns than you per game in either Vintage or Legacy. Mm -hmm. I mean, just the idea, for example, let's say the average Legacy game is... Well, the average Vintage game is about, what have I said, five and five, a half... Five turns, yeah. Five and a half turns, turns per player. Mm-hmm. Right, and the average legacy game is I don't know, maybe let's say like six and a half turns per player. Probably slightly more, yes. Probably slightly more, maybe. Um, if you're, if there will be games where by turn four, your opponent has taken twice as many turns as you. I mean, there will be, or turn, turn five, your opponent will have taken twice as many turns as you. You could reliably see yourself in a board state where you have your you Two play lands. you play your second land and your opponent has four lands down. Yes. In theory, if they went first, and that doesn't even require them to take consecutive turns. Right. It's just you know spacing. I mean, that is a gigantic advantage, and it's going to be very difficult for people to stay in games mm -hmm. where that sort of thing happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, so if there's only seven on average seven turns per game, I don't think the Murfolk decks take much further more than that. That's not right. 
Yeah, well, I'm just remembering from Legacy, like watching, observing. It's about seven, seven, maybe six, seven, eight turns per game. It, it's too hard to do anecdotally. But. Yeah, but in any case, I mean, you can imagine seven turn games. If that's all there is, and you've taken, you know, your opponent's taken seven turns, and you've taken four. That could be in the game. Yeah, and that that could reliably happen. And they don't need to chain four temporal masteries in a row to do that. They only need to play one or two. Right. And if they've been on the play, right, it's a gigantic blowout. I agree, and almost all the popular cards in Legacy play very well with this card. All the creatures, Delver is insane with this card. <laughs> uh, Tarmogoyf, obviously, yes. uh, Stoneforge Mystic, Linger- oh, Lingering Stoneforge. Souls, oh. Jace Top. All these cards, almost all of those Legacy cards. Days. Do you think that this? I think here's the more important question: Will this result in the banning of Brainstorm? I think it's a serious possibility. Yes, me too. And a lot of people point to this card and say, "Well, not why not ban the problem card? The problem card is brainstorm. Brainstorm, <laughs> brainstorm is too card good. Will still be good with brainstorm ban though. Brainstorm is almost too good for vintage. But do you think this, <laughs> yeah, do you think that this card is it will be too good, even even if brainstorm banned? That's the thing. Well, that's a tough. That's tough because brainstorm has is so technically superior to ponder, preordain, and top. Right. All the things you would use to replace it or augment yes. it. It's so much tactically superior that I don't think this card is nearly as good in right. Legacy. I mean, it's not dominantly good in Legacy if you don't have Brainstorm. We'll see. Well, we I, will I fear see. that it, I fear that it is just because Legacy is such a tempo format, and because again, let's just assume there's seven seven turns per player per game. Right. You know, you you hit seven while your opponent's still on four. It's just, it's going to feel, people don't understand how uninteractive this is going to be. People <laughs> complain about Trinisphere and Vintage. Right. Imagine sitting there helplessly while your opponent takes multiple turns in a row, or if not multiple turns, two turns for every turn you take. Right. That's realistic. And imagine that they're doing something productive with those turns, <laughs> right? Like After, attacking you or, or activating Jace. There will be, I'm going to say it for the sixth time, there will be active game states where... From turn three on, your opponent is taking two turns for every turn you have. Yeah. After turn three, there'll be players who are taking twice as many turns as another player. Yep. That's 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 gross. That, you're and right. People are going to sit there feeling helpless and annoyed. And, and if it becomes dominant enough, there will be a lot of backlash. But it, Much it worse. Have to be that dominant. It just has to be a little bit dominant, <laughs> and people are going to be irritated. It will irritate players much more than almost any other card or deck does. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's. I think that that was worth. Would be very interesting. Hey, you think they can uh, unrestrict Mystical Tutor and Legacy now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wonder if uh, people at Watsi who have been hearing that question come up occasionally for the last several months have just sort of smirked to themselves right. as they look at the Avacyn restored set list. Well, remember the conversation we had a while back of what's the least unrestrictable card in Vintage? Right. We said, right. we said time walk. And we came it, up with time walk. It's the, it creates the most uninteractive game states imaginable. And now, not only did they unrestrict it, we could play five. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, that's the other. People are talking about time walk and trying to compare it to time walk. Time walk is restricted. You get one. Yeah. To reuse it, you have to regrowth or Snapcaster Mage or Yawgmoth's Will, and we, it's limited. We've addressed this in the past. There's a big difference between having. Tactically and strategically, between having access to one of something which you can reliably get, or four of something which you can play repeatedly, you can play repeatedly, and you'll know will be at or near the top of your library after playing a lot of brainstorms or ponders. If you don't have, if you open your hand and you do not have a temporal mastery in your hand, Mm -hmm. you've got to feel good. There's one near the top of your library, don't you? Not? Yeah, I agree. I know. I agree completely. If if you're if you're in vintage and you open your hand and there's no temporal mastery. And you go, Mox Top. (laughs) You're right. The face that Kevin just gave was priceless. (laughs) It was like shaking his head and 
<laughs> this is going to be very interesting. I can't wait. All right, let's let's give this Tybalt guy uh, uh, his his fair shake. So I get to be for Mister Tybalt, and Steve will be against. So I'll start things off in this case, and w- with our normal initial criteria of casting cost, I have a pretty definitive yes. This casting cost is playable. However, it is not easily playable in any current archetype sure. that's popular. At is least, is there a single red red card that sees play? No, not at all. I'm not 100% sure about that. Uh, the only red cards that see play, really, Ancient Grudge, Lightning Bolt, Goblin Welder, Moon Man, uh, Red Elemental Blast. Uh, I'm, I'm skipping several, I'm sure, but they're all single red. So is the casting cost playable? Absolutely. It will require, I think, a, an almost entirely new deck. And obviously, if you're going to be playing Tybalt, you want to play him early. You want to play him on turn one or two, if possible. You want to be plus oneing him... A, a, for the first turn and the second turn that you have him in play. And well, so, why don't you go through and read what he does? Oh, sure. Well, okay. So he is a Planeswalker. Tybalt, He's the, the fe- first two casting Fiend-blooded, right. And he costs red-red. Let me switch up. i got to switch back to him here. His, his plus ability, he only has one plus ability, is... Draw a card <clears throat> and discard a card at random. His starting loyalty is two, we should point out. Mm. Draw a card, then discard a card at random. That's his only plus ability. Ability 2, minus 4. Tybalt deals damage equal to the number of cards in target player's hand to that player. So he is Stormseeker slash Sudden Impact. Minus 6, gain control of all creatures until end of turn. Untap them. They gain haste until end of turn. Insurrection, basically. It's insurrection. I was going to say word of seizing, but it's it's not. So he costs two, two loyalty. You plus one in the turn, he goes down. You're going to have to plus one him again on the next turn in order to get sudden impact, or for four consecutive turns in order to get insurrection. Obviously, we need to focus on his plus ability because there's no other reason to play this card. And we have lots of precedents for this looting a type effect in Vintage. We have... Bazaar of Baghdad, which is used to great effect every day. Do I expect this card to be in a dredge deck? No, not at all. For a number of reasons. Dredge doesn't want to be wasting time spending this mana, etc., etc. So where would this see play? This will see play in a Goblin Welder deck. Because it's a random discard, which means you can't control it very well. Which means you need uniformity in your cards. Which means you need to, quote-unquote, want to discard nearly any card in the deck or in your hand. Or be able to play with that ability. I foresee this going into a deck that goes turn one welder, turn two Tybalt, discard something of the several artifacts in my hand and weld it into play right now. Uh, The randomness will mean that there's a lot of variance there, which is one of the things keeping this card from being great, obviously. And a deck that's designed to abuse him will necessarily need to have lots of synergies just like old Stax decks did. You're going to need to have Crucible in order to get your lands back. You're going to have lots of interactions with Welder. You may also be playing Bazaar of Baghdad, which old Stacks decks did. It's been a while. And I think that's really the only place this card goes. He is not a card advantage engine. Well, I should say, he is only a card advantage engine if you are pulling the things out of your graveyard. And as such, that's really the best and only way I foresee him being used in this format. But I think he is usable in that way. So how does it play out? Turn one Welder, turn two Tibble? Yeah. Is this a blue blue deck? No, just mono red. I think workshops. I so mean, you could you could play a second color, but all your lands need to so tap this for would red. Be in mono red workshops. I, I think so. Yeah, I think that's the only place it can go. 
but a, a heavier red mono red workshops is the thing. This this deck won't be able to play. Yes, this deck won't be able to play quite as many factories. Probably Moonman, yes. So it'll probably it'll probably eschew factories and ports okay. in favor of more sources of red. So is that the best you've got? Yes, absolutely. Okay. That's the best All I've right. got. Let me let me launch my case. <laughs> How about all, you? First of all, you have a pretty high burden to argue that red red card is playable, seeing as there is not a single red red casting cost <laughs> spell that currently sees play in vintage or has from the foreseeable past. Well, that's because they're... I didn't almost, ask why. In, in almost every case, there's the a better card. The facts. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Keeping it to the facts here. <laughs> but I don't want to hear your rationalizations. But the question is not, opposing is not, are we playing cards that cost this? The question is, is it playable? Right. In, to which the answer is clearly yes. Well, the question, is it playable? Usually the, the first question towards answering that is, do any cards at this casting cost currently see playing vintage? Right. And if the answer is no, then you have to ask the other question is, well, why not? Maybe there's not a card that's powerful enough at that casting cost. Mm-hmm. But I do think that the, f- the first burden is is establishing why a card isn't seeing play. And once you've established there is no card, that burden is, is, is pretty high. There are For no, example, there are there are no, no red, red, there are no red white, cards. White, 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 white cards that see play in Vintage. <laughs> Prove to me why one could, right? Yeah. So, well... Uh, but the answer to that question is inextricably linked to the quality of the no red doubt. red cards. No doubt, and, and most I'm, of them suck. So I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to explain why you're wrong <laughs> that, that this card is not powerful enough to see play. Um, okay, first of all, I do agree that a red workshop deck is viable. I mean, um, it already is. It already is. It's not that great. I tend to think that the mono brown versions are a lot better because you have reliable, more reliable mana bases. Uh, Goblin Welder is worse than ever with Wrath Digger stage around. Um, not to mention the fact that you you really want as a workshop deck to be able to power out early turn one Lotone Golems, which means you really want to max out on Ancient Tombs, and that eats into your your capacity to, to, to stuff mountains and other basic lands into your deck. You know, to that point, our teammate Brian would disagree with you entirely. He recently had a whole section of his article about how the first person that can profitably play Goblin Welder in this environment is going to be an advantage. Well, well let, let's just let's talk about this a little more detail. Typically, the decks that are mono-brown have four workshops, four Ancient Tombs, Academy, and multiple City of Traders. Like they'll run at least, like, what, one or two? Or factories or ports. Well, they usually Lots combo. It's like yeah. combo of City of Traders, ports, and factories. Yeah. The decks that go mono-red workshops run four workshops, the academy, a bunch of mountains, and then they have to run, like... Waste and strip. Wait, well, they all run waste and strip. Yeah. But then they run, like, two ancient tombs, and they cut all the city of traders. And the factories so, and the ports and, the factories and everything else. So you else. dramatically reduce not only your disruption, the mm-hmm. factories, ports, ghost quarters, but your ability to accelerate your most important cards, like a turn one... Lodestone Golem. It seems to me well established by the statistical evidence, the tournament data, that the mono red versions are less uh, um, reliable and less consistent than the mono brown versions mm-hmm. because of what they've done in their mana base. Not to mention, Solemn Simulacrum is not an exciting card to run. It's <laughs> the most an unfortunate necessity. Yes. Um, so I, I don't I don't see this card being played in workshops. 
the, the, the larger problem I have, though, frankly, is with the first ability. Um, so, I mean, I just think that the, the casting cost is prohibitive. But that's not as interesting as the as the, the first ability. It's only prohibitive if you're trying to shoehorn it into a workshop deck, though. If you're trying to play it in any kind of other deck, it's easy. Well, I don't. I would say it's easy. I in mean, an existing red green deck, this casting cost is not a problem. Sure, sure. That's well. I'd be careful about that because the the red green decks would rather have. I mean, basically, they go right. They really need the green mana. Well, they have, so they get they have like 80 taigas. I mean, what's the deal? Not a lot. They have like one taiga and oh, come seven thatch and, <laughs> and, and one mountain and, and moon man. Yeah, okay. okay. Well, okay. They're, they're playable. I agree. It's, it's, you can cast it, this guy with moon man and play. If there was a red red creature that said that had the first ability to draw a card, a red red, a red red play play that the first ability to just draw a card, this would be fine. <laughs> I mean, I think the problem is there's, there's several problems. First of all, uh, I don't like the fact that it says draw a card and then discard. I would at prefer, random. At, I'm getting, that's my second. <laughs> okay. That's, I would prefer it to be flipped. I'd rather discard then draw. Oh, granted. Like Naturally. Jolum. Like Jolum, Jolum Tomb does that? Yeah. Uh, um, any, I forget which one it is. One, one of those old artifacts. Well, in any case, the, the problem is that the best case scenario for a card like this is used to me is when you have a useless card in your hand that you want to get rid of and turn it into a good card. Mm-hmm. So you have an, a superfluous land that you want to turn into a business spell. Mm-hmm. This Planeswalker would, if that were the case, give you the ability to do it. So you could discard this card and then draw a good one. Or, I suppose suppose you had no cards in your hand and said discard a card, then you wouldn't have to discard it anyway, and you just get a free draw. <laughs> so it would obviously be better. Right. But supposing it is like it is now, you have a dead card in your hand, like an extra mountain, and you activate it, and you draw a card. That's good. It's good. You want to keep the good card and discard the mountain. Mm-hmm. But it says discard it at random. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, at that point, you have a 50-50 chance of losing the good card. <laughs> I think that is the problem with this card. Well, that's why I say the first any deck that's going to play him has to be able to profit from that scenario you just described. And I don't think you can reliably activate Welders unless you have, I mean... Why not? It could take three activations before you actually discard an artifact. Oh, I see your point. You're right, you're going to get screwed sometimes. Not only discard lands, but that's or why you're going to play. Like you're going to play Crucible. Yeah. Uh, so it's I, you're right. The variance is the thing that fights this the most. And the but second ability. There, hold on, I want to point out yeah. there is one way to abuse this card. The old uh, Uba Mask allows you to ah. guarantee that you have access to the card you just drew. That's true. Well, Uba Mask hasn't seen play in a long time, and Uba Mask. Wouldn't Faithless Looting be just as effective? Wouldn't Uba Mask be very good at fighting Temporal Mastery? The answer is yes. You, you can't miracle it if it's not in your hand. I see. So it hasn't been in your hand. You made that point earlier. Yeah. Um, very interesting. So the second, the second thing... <laughs> so the first argument is the casting cost is prohibited. The second thing is that the first ability is not nearly good enough. I mean, and there's multiple prob flaws with it. Mm-hmm. I've just identified two. The third thing, though, is that the second ability, you're not building up to a useful second ability. All the playable Planeswalkers have a very useful second ability. It's, I mean, the ultimates are granted. They will win games. That's why they're not, they're not very important. I mean, the ultimates are largely irrelevant, frankly. Uh, I agree. Um, and so when we look at evaluate Planeswalkers, we should be looking at the first two abilities. And or three th- in the case of Jace. Or three in the case of the Mind Sculptor. <laughs> In this in this case, Stormseeker it seems like one of the least relevant abilities. I mean, if you were, I mean, just let's think about like Legacy Burn for a second. I mean, like if you're a Legacy Burn deck, and this was sort of like 
siphoning, cycling mountains into burn spells, it could be very useful. And then you ultimate, you know, finish them with Stormseeker. Mm-hmm. But you can't even do that. You can't control it. You can't control it. Half the time you're going to discard a mountain, or you're going to discard a bolt, I mean, right. and keep a mountain that you don't if need. If they just tweak the first ability a little bit, this would be potentially playable. I think there are just too many barriers. But the second, abil- the second ability is basically a blank. <laughs> it really is. It may as well not have it. Uh, so I, I there, there's there's no chance this card's going to see play in the digit. Despite the best efforts of our friend Theo, I will I'll be very interested to see when they finally print a Planeswalker in red that can be played in vintage. Yeah, the Chandra is interesting, but it's not yeah. good enough. Maybe we'll see a blue red Planeswalker in Ravnica. That would be that would be sick. <laughs> All right. Anything else to say on Tybalt? I think he's received enough attention for now. Yeah, I'm glad Wizards printed a two mana Planeswalker. But this is not as aggressive as they could have made it. I'm sure they had a lot of discussions about what to do with the first ability, but they just didn't make it good enough. Definitely. I'm sure they had long, long and heated discussions about how to build this card. And you basically have to get two lands in your hand before you can, you know, get on better than even odds to keep your business going. All right, let's talk about somebody that has a little bit more hope. I am for. Gristle brand. <laughs> let me de- let me describe why I'm for Gristle brand. What is Gristle brand? Gristle brand has one ability. Actually, <laughs> <has> two. I'm joking. <laughs> All of his other statistics are irrelevant. No, Gristle brand is an enormous legendary creature demon for black, 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 black four. <laughs> Flying lifelink. Seven. Black, 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 four? He costs black, eight. Black, 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 okay. He costs seven. eight. No. He has flying lifelink. He has the ability pay seven life, colon, draw seven cards, and he is seven, seven himself. So, like I said, he has one ability. Oh. <laughs> Actually, he has two abilities. One is being a creature. <laughs> the second is you can pay seven life to draw seven cards. Vintage is currently just riddled with decks that can put fatties into play. It's hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, he's not an artifact, so we're not going to be tinkering for him. But he is a very legitimate target, I think, for consideration at least, in Dredge and Oath. And in both cases, he has the ability to simply end the game in your favor as soon as you get the relevant effects to put him into play. Dredge already relies upon machinations with Sun Titan to get back a Fate Stitcher or another Bazaar of Baghdad in order to continue dredging. There's pretty much no way that if you get Gristlebrand into play with Dredge that you cannot immediately put your entire library into your graveyard. So he takes that goal of dredging more to the logical extreme. If you have a Dredge deck and you want to immediately cause your Dread return to also happen to flip your library into your graveyard, then I don't think you can do much better than this guy at that. But there is a cost. If you are fighting for your life against another dredge deck and they got the advantage in terms of number of zombies. If you're fighting against a Tarmogoyf deck that happened to waste your first bazaar, there are plenty of scenarios when paying 7 life won't be even possible or at least desirable. So I think it's definitely worth consideration in dredge. It slots right into some of the other fatty slots and you can try it right now with making very minimal other changes to your deck. Testing will bear out whether or not it's better. In terms of Oath, it fills a very similar role to Runescar Demon, where with Runescar Demon, you want a creature that simply gets you an incremental advantage 
this is not so much incremental as just a sledgehammer kind of advantage where you're going to draw a whole new hand. And in theory, in any kind of oath jack with lots of control elements, you are going to find all kinds of goodies when you draw seven more cards. And if you have lots of life, you can draw 14 if you like. And in doing so, you'll probably get an insurmountable advantage. Also, this guy happens to be <laughs> also this guy happens to be bigger and better than Runescar Demon. So the demon is six six flying. This guy is seven seven flying life link, and the life link is in an oath context. I think highly relevant. Yes. Now you can't play double Gristle Brand, unfortunately, because he's a legend. So you're going to only have one of them. But Are I you think sure he. You can play double well, yeah, within reason, you can. You just probably won't. I don't know. Don't you want to be able to oath well, twice in two different guys? Look, you've made your case. Let me make the let me make the anti, <laughs> let me make the anti case. Okay? All right. Oh, plus, plus he has like a giant hook spike for an arm. <laughs> Just FYI. Um, I think that we can let's start with your dredge example. Was well, this card playable? This card is too expensive to cast, and he's not good enough to cheat. Um, what, first, do you mean, what do you mean by cheat? Okay, so there are several ways that you we typically cheat creatures in, in vintage. I'd say four of the most typical. First right. is Tinker, second is Oath, third is Dread Return, and the fourth is Show and Tell. There's also Channel. But and Rituals, but yeah. Not, you can't not Ritual lately. this guy out. Not lately you, anyway. So. I mean, you, you can't Dark Ritual this guy out. You need a, two Dark Rituals and a Cabal Ritual on Threshold. <laughs> With Mana Vault in play. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, you're not going to Ritual this guy out. Uh, yeah, which is too bad, because if he costs six or seven mana, he would be within Ritual range. Right. Um... The and Tinker is right out. So t- Tinker's out. The third one you li- so you listed Oath, Dread Return, and Show and Tell. So he is Show and Tellable. He is Show and Tellable. Um, so he that, and and for people who don't Show and Tell right now, people play Show and Tell Oath with Emrakul. You can't channel it, so it's worse than Emrakul since you can channel Oath and right in the Show and Tell Oath deck. I agree, this guy's just worse than what you've got. Isn't Emrakul just better? Yeah, I was thinking as a replacement yeah. in Rune's card. Runescar Demon, though, wins immediately because he finds the Time Lock. He finds the Yog Will, you know, each time. Mm-hmm. And he's better in multiples. So he gets around the legendary problem that you have identified with this card. So you both up the first one, you, you know, you will get, or you can even sometimes just assemble straight the combo, mm-hmm. the Time Vault or whatever. So I don't think he replaces Runescar Demon, which is the most popular Oath creature right now. Um, and I certainly don't think that he's going to be played in, le- in Dredge. I mean, the reality is that Dredge. I mean, if you're at the point where you're dread, dread returning anyway, why don't you just go for the win with, uh, you know, with the uh, the King Zealot, Flamekin Zealot, yeah, the Zealot. Um, so I I don't really see a natural home. I mean, in theory he's playable, but well, but what do you make of the Sun Titan example? Well, dredge decks were using Sun Titan for incremental advantage. Are they to even dredge more. Sun Titan anymore? Is they, it hard? Well, I don't know about today, but yeah. yes, they are still playing Sun Titan. Okay. Well, it might not be in every dredge deck, but still. But it, but that's an apt comparison, I believe, given that the goal of Sun Titan was basically just to provoke additional dredging. And he is, I think, better at that. I think Sun Titan had a slight had had a more versatile purpose than that. So granted, it could do more than that, and sometimes did. But the default for Sun Titan was simply to accelerate additional dredging. That's a fair point. I, I don't. I think that the answer to that question is that Sun Titan is no longer really viable. Um, and I'm doing. I'm looking at some data right now. There have been literally three copies of Sun Titans in Vintage Top Eight since January. So okay. that answers that question. It's definitely Sun Titan has disappeared. It's definitely dissipated. There's one. In fact, one for each. There's one in March, 
and two that appeared in February and none in April so far. Mm -hmm. So Sun Titan has disappeared. I think that answers that question. Okay, however, so I, ma I made the case against. However, against. to my point though, I believe this guy is better than Sun Titan at doing what the default for Sun Titan was. That's fair, so but that's gone. So, one, but the point is, if something is better now, it could make a resurgence. Okay, so which do you think is more persuasive, the pro or the con? <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not here to make judgments. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let our listeners make judgments, but I would like to say which I think is more persuasive. You know what I think we should do? I think we should come back at the end and uh, okay. talk about our big four and against. But you know what? I I made us predict the number of temporal masteries. Yes. So let's back up and do Tybalt. What do you? What, what's zero. the number for Tybalt? Zero. For top eights. Yeah, I'm going to go with zero as well. Uh, <laughs> Gristlebrand, then. What's your number for Gristlebrand? Well, see, this this answers the question. This will reveal how persuasive it really is. That's fine. Uh -huh. You just gave me the uh, okay nod. <laughs> go with it. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay um, with that. Um, I think this is more interesting than just giving a vote I at the end. I think there'll be, like, let's say 11. 11 Gristlebrand, really? Yeah. No, I think this card is actually quite playable. Okay. I was on the con, but I, I think this card is good. Well, I was on the four, but I think I'm less four than you are, so I'm going to say Gristlebrand top eights, four. That's, fair. We'll That's see a, a very marginal card. That's yeah. people are I just think that this card is very potent, and I think it's comparable, if not better, than Moonscar Demon, mm -hmm. because all you're trying to do is find the time walk. You know, if you if you you owe this guy up, you can pay fourteen life and draw fourteen cards. How do you not find the time walk? Similar to our not? similar to our discussions on, on time walk. Yeah. Uh, similar to our discussions on temporal mastery. Yes. This is just an effect that explodes. I mean, you, you get such a huge how advantage. Do you, how do you not find the time walk? Because it, it's like this. It's, 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 this goes back to a conversation I used to have about long. Yeah. When I would write my articles on original long or death long or grim long. What I tried to explain is that the, the draw sevens were tutors. Yeah. They were tutors that gave you a mixture of mana, of tutoring, and the spells you were looking for. This is exactly what this does. This is a tutor. that may not give tutor the time lock, but it will give you the mana and the tutoring and the resources to find and play the time lock. Right. Almost immediately. Yeah. And if, if you can draw 14 cards... I don't see how you don't get time walk. <laughs> and if you and if you don't is, get to time walk, how is your opponent going to fight through what you just drew? It's just impossible. Yeah. And not only do you get the fourteen cards though, so so you're going to get time walk, or you're going to get Yogmas will, or you're going to get the, the time vault combo, yeah. or you're going to get something that you're going to be able to go nuts. And then once you play the time walk, then you untap, attack, draw seven more life, and it, get, the game's over. It's the game's yeah. over. This card is the the best thing I've ever seen. In terms of if it. you don't get the time walk, you're going to get Jace. You're going to get multiple counters. You're going to get Key I'm, Vault. I you might get both halves of Key I think Vault. This card is better than Emrakul <laughs> and, show, and Show and Tell Vault uh, Oath. I, this is the best Oath creature I've ever seen, and I just wish it cost seven because then you could eat, you know it'd be like yeah. a ritual card in other formats. There is one use case that we that I forgot I was going to mention, and that is comparing him to Bargain. A couple of people when he first Very came out right. said. Is this a is this a way to play five this bargains in vintage now? And I say obviously no. I mean eight is prohibitive. Six was on the cusp, making right. bargains sometimes not be useful. How many lotus cobras would you need? <laughs> <laughs> lotus cobra gristlebrand combo. I like it. All right. So now we've done enough on gristlebrand. I believe number four on our. No, no. Well, I I 
we have. I mean, we didn't discuss the dredge thing except for the. I, I think that you make oh, a good case. You, I thought you already said he's not good enough if Sun Titan's not good enough. That was my position. Oh, the, okay. That, now, now we're going to revisionist history. No, now. but I mean, <laughs> I was making the argument to try and you know okay. see what see what your counter to my arguments would be. I think you made a good point. I mean, we. You know, we're sharpening the perspective yeah. to try and... Well, I, I your, your point about Sun Titan disappearing is well made. He is better at doing that than Sun Titan is, by far. Yes. But the question is, was Sun Titan ever really failing to get you there? I mean, I, I don't... In my yeah. experience... This card would not fail to get you there. Well, it's guaranteed, yes. right. In any case, I do think this is a, this card would be good enough. Fringe playable. Yeah. Let's move on. Okay. Number four, Reforge the Soul. This, for those who may not know, is the Wheel of Fortune miracle. We've covered the Time Walk miracle, which <laughs> cost 7, and the miracle cost was effectively Time Walk. This one's structured a little differently, though, whereas it doesn't cost much more than the original Wheel of Fortune. It only costs 5 in Red Red 3, and it is naturally a sorcery. But the miracle cost here is 2, just like Temporal Mastery. Each player discards his or her hand and draws seven cards. So it is exactly like Wheel of Fortune. This, I think, is very interesting. I'm taking the four on this case as well. And we're going to have to talk about Legacy and Vintage with this card, similar to how we did for Temporal Mastery, because I think it's relevant in both. One thing about this card right off the bat is when we talk about casting costs, let's go with Vintage first. In Vintage... <laughs> we've already talked about how nothing that costs red red sees play absolutely nothing that costs red red three sees any play so if you're playing the canon planning to cast this without the miracle it, it'll be unprecedented in modern vintage the miracle cost of two at red one is obviously playable there are a number of parallels there that we don't need to belabor but this would be the cheapest draw seven in existence exactly the notion that you will reliably cast this card via its miracle cost, though, I think is the most interesting notion. We already have fringe playable vintage Belcher decks. Very fringe playable vintage Belcher decks. So you're on the four. I'm on the four here. Okay. Those decks are already well established and set up to cast a five casting cost red spell. doesn't even matter how much red's in it. Those decks can play a five red spell. Um, so the notion of castability is kind of a yes-no, in my opinion. It's There's nothing that currently has this cost, but it could easily be done in the right deck. Those decks have all the red rituals, the tinder walls, the simian spirit guides, all that jazz. A, a Belcher-style list could easily slot four of these in and expect to pay five for it. I think this card, ironically, in Vintage at least, will never be cast for its miracle cost. Really? You're the four? Yeah, yeah. I think this card is playable without the miracle mechanic. Now, we have plenty of draw sevens in the history to compare to. We have the original Wheel of Fortune and Twister, which are restricted because of their efficiency. We have diminishing returns, which I think is a fascinating comparison to this card, because on its surface, someone would say, well, that costs four and nobody doesn't see play. Blue exile itself? Just curious. No, it, it, it uh, shoot, I don't remember if it does, but it exiles the top 10 cards, so time it's obviously spiral. not. It's Time Spiral plus the 10 card exile. There's Time Spiral's additional. Right. And Jar, the other draw. No, no, I'm sorry, but I'm stopping at diminishing okay. returns for com the com casting cost comparison because, as I was saying, lots of people would stop there and say that costs four and sees no play. Obviously, something that costs five isn't going to see play, right? And I say no, because Blue Blue 2 is much more than Red Red 3. Because all of the rituals are red or right. black. 
it is very hard to accelerate to blue blue too. It's hard to just accelerate to blue blue in such a competitive environment with wastelands and whatnot. Yeah. Um, you have to plan ahead and play lots of basic islands and slow roll in order to get to blue blue spells. Even red, on the other hand, no problem. I can get you red red three with no lands in play on turn one reliably. And so that's why I say this casting cost is functionally less than diminishing returns. I believe it's quite possible to build a Belcher-style deck that can reliably wheel on turn one in more than half of its games, and then mm-hmm. proceed to go off from there. And if you don't wheel, it's because you've got one of your four Belchers in your hand, and you don't need to. So my comments also somewhat apply to Legacy, where Belcher is even more common in its fringeness. But I think that the notion that you would miracle this card is almost not worth considering. Let, let me, it's not worth setting up miracles in a deck filled with brainstorms and tops and all this jazz just to then wheel. Those those plays are time investments that you're much better off getting temporal mani- mastery, I mean, and getting more incremental advantage with your manipulation than just trying to stack the top of your deck so that you can wheel for two mana during your upkeep yeah. or during your draw step. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's antithetical. It doesn't work well. So I believe this card is highly playable. I think the precedent is there in in Past in Flames decks, in Legacy, in Belcher decks in Legacy, or in Belcher-style decks in Vintage. I think those decks just get more explosive with this card. Well, I actually uh, I, I tend to agree with you. So in order to make the con position, let me, let me lay out the other reasons I think this card might be playable. One, I think that you're looking at it from the wrong direction. I think you're looking at Belcher decks. Mm-hmm. I think you need to cut the Belchers out of the Belcher and just think of the win condition being empty the Warrens and then using and replacing the Belchers with this card. Because okay. the Belcher is a forecasting cost artifact that costs how much to activate? Three, three. Activate. It's the seven colorless kill. Yeah, so I think this is just better. I mean, this is, I agree with you, this is something you can open and fire off. Mm-hmm. And then it's also something that you will occasionally draw. In, you, I, I disagree with you that you're never going to miracle this. This could be a top deck miracle. I, I think. It's going to happen. I just think it's yeah. going to be 20 to 1. For every one time you miracle this, you're uh, going to cast it for 5 100 like, times. Maybe like 9 or 10 to 1. <laughs> <laughs> Still, that means this card would be playable without the miracle right. mechanic. Um, but I think that uh, I, I think that this is something that could fuel large Empty the Warrens on turn 1 or 2. Yeah. With, with all the red rituals. I think you make a good point. It's, it's much more reliable to just plan on playing Empty with this deck. Because yeah. you're going to have played into that with the storm already. Exactly, so. exactly. So I think that's why I said that, that you're looking the long way. The uh, the thing is, though, that... Um, so let me continue to just build this card up a little bit before I, <laughs> before I tear it down. Um, just bolster with the points that you already made, I think, were well put. Um, the, I mean, the red rituals are all there. Tinderwall and the Simian Spirit Guide, Desperate Ritual, Bride of Flame, etc., etc. There are other... I mean, so Times Barrel Seam Play and Seas Play and Legacy is a six casting cost Wheel of Fortune, although it's usually accelerated out with high tide. Right. Memory the jar, one blue ritual. <laughs> Memory Jar is phenomenal in Belcher decks. Yeah. I mean, so I think that really underscores that this card should be quite fine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Granted, you can't weld Memory Jar. But Belcher doesn't. But, but you can cut the welders then. No, Belcher sometimes runs welders. Well, yeah. But you can they cut have. the welders and just run more more gas. The other thing is... Um, uh, what was I going to say? Um, 
memory jar is a comparison thank I you. forgot. Yeah, but. thank you. That's that's the card I wanted to draw attention to is memory jar. But but the, so now let me turn to the other side. Magus the jar has not seen any play in vintage. But as you point out, blue, blue, and not <laughs> that's even worse than diminishing return. So this is a this is a memory jar that sort of like a memory jar like card, and it's and mm-hmm. it costs five. Uh, I think it's going to be fine. To, to tear it down, though, I think the real problem is those Belcher decks have disappeared in the vintage mm-hmm. context. It's very fringe right now. There, are, There is literally one Belcher top eight in 2012. Mm-hmm. So that deck has disappeared. And I don't see a home for this card anywhere else besides those red acceleration decks. Nat Mose is going to have a lot of fun with this card. <laughs> But will it see plays and top eight appearances? I'm I think very skeptical. I think this strategy is well positioned in the current metagame. As the number of swords to plowshares go up, okay. much better gets your red storm deck. So this is the fuel for a red storm deck. Alright, put your money on the table. How many of these do you think will appear in top eight three years three months from now? Three months from now. Sadly not many. I'm gonna say ten. I'll go six. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do you think about Legacy? I think it's got real potential there. You think it slots into an existing Past in Flames shell? I, I've never been a fan of Past in Flames. I think Past in Flames is garbage. But I do but this card makes Past in Flames better, and Past in Flames makes this card better. Why Past in Flames? Why can't we just do Belcher in Legacy with the same principles? But Past in I mean, Flames is cheaper. Same reason that you wanted but, empty the warrants. Look, look. You, I mean, you, we have all the same cards, just back up in the moxen. Yeah. You have you have the Simeon spirit guides, the desperate rituals, dark rituals. Let's just go and, that like, way. and legacy. You can play four LEDs and four petals exactly. too. So that's exactly. what. That's why past in flames is better. That's my point. That's why you play past in flames and legacies because you've got four LEDs. I think this is just a better storm engine than past in flames. I, I, I'm not saying in place of. I'm saying in addition yeah, to. to I, together, I they, so. they feed each other. I just want to play four of this guy. You don't want to. You don't want to wheel on turn one. You don't want to play two LEDs and wheel and then draw past in flames. Give me a break. That's insane. <laughs> that's ridiculous. I just then you wheel again. I think when you add the four empty the Warrens and the three burning wish. You know what? You're going to make okay. 48 goblins on turn one easy. <laughs> you, Burning Wish is legal in Legacy, right? It, uh, yeah. Okay, so you can put some of these in the sideboard, like one of these in the sideboard. Yeah, you can play three of each Yeah. in the main that, and then that go would, crazy. That would work. That would work. But you, but you also have the standard black uh, list with, not standard, but you have typical black list, I mean, with uh, Infernal Tutor, too. Yeah. So Legacy yeah. is wide open for this card. Wide open, and yeah, you're right. You have spells you have to deal with, but the legacy version of this compared to the vintage version might actually be worse. I mean, more explosive. Yes, because you yeah. have four petals, which are better than Mox yeah. Pearl in this deck. Yes, and you have four LEDs, which are I'm, insane. I'm just concerned about Past in Flames taking up space of a focus deck. You know, <laughs> that I don't really think it's necessary. Past in Flames is not as good at being an engine as this card is, so maybe you run two of those in four. Of there you go. Something that's like something that. like that's yeah. what I'm getting at. Okay. I just, okay. I'm not a big fan of Passing Flames as a card. And I love combo decks, so you know. Right, <laughs> right. So we think this is going to be a fringe presence in both formats. It's playable. You think this is going to take any limelight away from Temporal Mastery and Legacy? I mean, does... Temporal Mastery will, will have plenty of limelight. It's going <laughs> to be the window pressing of this set. Okay. For our last card, for at least for this episode, we're going to talk about Cavern of Souls. And this one has been getting, like Temporal Mastery, has been getting an awful lot of press. Oh, boy. Yeah, and for for those who don't know, I'll run it down real quickly. This is a land, Cavern of Souls is. <clears throat> As Cavern of Souls enters the battlefield, choose a creature type 
This land has two abilities. One, tap to add a colorless to your mana pool. Two, add one mana of any color to your mana pool. Spend this mana only to cast creature spells of the chosen creature type. If this mana is spent on a spell, that spell can't be countered by spells or abilities. Are you kidding? Steve, you're for this card, right? I am for this card. Exactly. How much are you for this card? <laughs> well, I am for this card, like similar to like I'm for this card, Grafttaker's Cage. Mm-hmm. That for that card. Okay. In a similar amount, you mean? There is a there is a, a land that had a very important effect in making spells uncountable, named Bozeju. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who shelters, shelters all. all. Not quite all, but it's a misnomer. <laughs> Who shelters many? <laughs> shelters some. <laughs> Who is indifferent to others? <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I think this card is a lot better than Bezeju. Yeah. Um, For a lot of reasons. This card uh, is very exciting. And I think it accelerates the trend. It's it's great that this card is in the set because the trend of the last of this block has been to promoting the development and furthering the development of creature-based strategies or creature-oriented strategies. And what you know, and we've seen non-creature spells that do that: Grafter's Cage, mm-hmm. and now this. Mm-hmm. What a remarkable convergence of those spells and on that that trajectory. Rather, this isn't a spell, but of those, those right. cards, those printings. Um, this card uh, as a rainbow land will really aid in the design of multicolor decks that can really pack in disruptive bears and and creatures in ways that weren't really possible before and then will also make less important or more redundant spells that were designed to protect other creatures so cards like Gadok Teague or a Grand Abolisher become less important as this card now sees print. First, you can play multiples of this card. It's not a legend. It's not like Bazeju. So you can just pack four in immediately. Yep. Second, most of the disruptive spells that you would play are super playable with this because you can cast Grabtaker's Cage or Null Rod off this. Given that it taps for colorless. Given that it taps for colorless. Which is a huge advantage. It's a huge advantage. If this card did not tap for colorless, or could only tap to play uh, your your creatures, mm-hmm. I don't think it would be... Yeah. It would be garbage. Yeah. It would be EDH. <laughs> the, the, limita- the chief limitation I see on this card is not being able to play Swords of Plowshares. Um, uh, you know, certainly it, it can't cast Time Walk or Brainstorm. I mean, when I think of these beat stacks, I typically design them without blue. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily because I'm, I think they're best without blue, because I like to pick the challenge up. Mm-hmm. You know, and this card will be best supporting the creatures and the colors that have the greatest density of disruptive bears, mm-hmm. that which is white. White has, the, by far, the greatest number of playable disruptive bears, I mean, from top to bottom. Granted, which is why all our beatdown decks start as white X. Exactly. The, the, I mean, it's not that green has that many. It has Tarmogoyf, but what green does is it has the green-white creatures, <laughs> like Kasali Pride Mage and, 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 and Noble Hierarch to a lesser extent. Right. So this card can play all of those, which is great. Um, the um, So that's the, the, the second thing. But typically, the decks that are designed in that way, in that fashion, are two or three colors at most. Kevin, what this card opens up is a possibility of four and five color beats decks. Fun. 
um, where you pack in everything, where you run the best white creatures, uh, Dark Confidant, right? The the tar Tarmogoyf, Grim Lava Mancer, the, the you know Snapcaster Mage, Delver. Yeah, you can run yeah. all of them now. Mm -hmm. um, I do think though that what this damages, frankly, is the possibility of some of those one and two color beat decks. So the decks that I designed for my Eternal Central article on aggro and vintage, like the mono green decks are hugely damaged because you can't cast Beast, Beast Within. Mm -hmm. You can't cast, you know, uh, it's, you can cast Crucible with it, but you can't cast a lot of the other, you know. And Source of Plowshares is a huge card in these white decks, and so that's a danger. I think that you're going to have to figure out, you know, is this an eight, are you going to play playing with Aether Vials? You know, you can't probably play Stony Silence. <laughs> if you're playing this, so that means you're going back to Nullrod. What? Oh, I'm sorry. Because of this card helps you cast Stony Silence, but if you draw two of them, you can't cast Stony Silence. Stony Silence. Yeah, you need you need a, a white mana right. producer that isn't this. Um, so this is going to change a lot of things. It's going to open the door to four and five color beat stacks, which is super exciting. Um, it will reduce the need to use cards like Teague. Because you don't need to worry about turning off Force of Will. It's automatically going to be turned off. Right. Um, I think it will increase the reliance on free counterspells like Mental Misstep, though, which will be much stronger than Duress, Thoughtseize, Red Elemental Blast, or Pyroblast, because you won't be able to reliably play those spells if you drew, draw, say, a two caverns opener. Right. So one of the strengths of playing multiple colors or black or red is that you get to use those highly disruptive spells. I don't think you can rely on them as much. I don't think you can rely on Stony Silence. So it's a somewhat of a mixed bag, but I think it's on the whole a huge net positive. It takes away some options, but opens up a lot more. Um, I think this is something that Beatsnecks have desperately needed, so that now you could finally play that turn one uncounterable Thalia. <laughs> or that, or that turn one uncounterable Kataki, or whatever. Um, the other thing, though, is that this will expose you more to wastelands. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure whether this sort of supports or promotes a aether vial approach more. But I tend to think those are redundant because aether vials, one of aether vials' <laughs> purposes is to evade counter magic. Right. So um, I just think that th this means more null rod. Back to Null Rod over Stony Silence, and three, three, four color beat stacks. Where you're going to have to choose, Kevin, which color is going to be the one you're going to use. You're, is going to be the base for all your dual lands, and then this is going to be the support around it. Right. And I think a lot of people are going to choose like green and blue. You know, and this, it makes a lot of sense to play Noble Hierarch if you're playing a you know four color beat stack, where you can probably play white, green, blue, black, or something like that. Uh, I'm not sure that the place for this is something yet. By the way, this is also exciting to play even Mindcaster. Mind Sensor. Mind Sensor. One of the, the problems with that card, obviously, is that people just counter it, and it's expensive. So here, you just evade that entirely. Right. So th this land is super playable. It opens new vistas for uh, aggro decks and the uh, the uh, in ways that are beyond the obvious. So it's not just that it makes cards... Makes uncounterable, but it opens up multicolor options that probably weren't available before, while limiting some some color combinations. And that 
is part of my primary criticism. Obviously, this card is inextricably linked to creature types in its in its efficacy and its ability to build certain decks. And you listed a ton of examples just now, but you can't just willy-nilly put together a, a green-white X deck with this land and put all the disruptive creatures in it you want. Gadok Teague is a Kithkin advisor. <laughs> Two creature types that you never want to name with this card, because you're not going to have any other of either of those types in your deck. Right. Gadok Teague goes out. It's her. You, you may as well just play a Lotus Petal instead of that land to, yeah. to cast Gadok Teague, because you're never going to tap it for color mana again. Right. And while there are lots of synergistic overlaps, human and wizard are probably the top two cases yes. where just tons of synergistic creatures exist. You've got it, human, you've got Delver already, Snapcaster, and Bob, and Grim Lavamancer, and just tons of examples. And in wizard, which overlaps with human in a lot of cases, you have a similar batch of creatures that you can use that are probably going to be pretty good. It's the problem with this card is not what it can cast, but what it can't cast. And in both the formats we care about, those cards are blue and they cost one. In Legacy, it's Brainstorm. I do not want to open up a hand of this with two of these and no other lands in it and be looking at a Brainstorm or a Ponder in my right. hand. Right. I'm going to shoot myself. What do you I don't... Double Hierarch, by the way, with its card type? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I cannot answer that right now. You'll be okay. faster at it than I will. But this card facilitates a lot, but then it cuts off a lot of the best things in these formats. This card cannot cast Ancestral Recall. And yes, Ancestral Recall is not a key tactic, necessary tactic of a creature deck in Vintage, Mm -hmm. but man, are you going to lose games if you (laughs) fan open two of these and you can't cast multiple spells in your hand. Noble Hierarch is a human. Okay, so he's he's synergistic there as well. The point is not that there aren't synergistic combinations of creatures for it. The point is that it kills certain other synergies in your deck. The Delver decks in Legacy are creature decks only in the slimmest sense. These are decks that have Delvers and Goifs and one or two other guys in them, maybe. Maybe not. Nimble Mongoose, maybe only 12 creatures. I don't know the exact numbers right. that's popular today. But these decks also have Jace, and they also have Days, and they also have Ponder and Brainstorm. You can't cast any of those cards off of this reliably. You're not going to cast Tarmogoyf off of this ever. Yeah, that's another good point. It doesn't synergize with what's currently popular. But the thing is, you can find a replacement for Tarmogoyf. You can't find a replacement for Brainstorm. Is uh, Stoneforge Mystic human? (laughs) Sorry, I I don't know that off the top of my hand. I I think it's a core, but I don't know if it's a core artificer or not, or or core or wizard. I think it might be a wizard. Stoneforge Mystic is... A core artificer. There you That's go. unfortunate. Yeah, see, and there's another two more things you're never going to name. So it cuts you off of certain creatures, which I don't think is the nail in the coffin. I think the nail in the coffin is the spells it cuts you off of. You can't cast Jace with, with well, two of these in a I, dual I'm land. I'm not concerned about the fact that you can't cast Jace or Brainstorm or Ponder well, that's or Duress or Red Blast. I am, though. I'm far more concerned about the fact that you can't just cram the absolute best disruptive creatures in and play them all. <laughs> well, that's, the, that's the bigger concern. You're, so it's you, not the spells that I can't play, it's the creatures <laughs> I can't play. You can, but there are plenty of, of synergistic combos when it comes to the creatures, though. You could play a Delver, Snapcaster, Bob... Uh, uh, noble hierarch humans wizards deck 
uh, three of those are human wizards, I think, and one of them is just a human insect, eventually. Okay, in or just case, a human. land better than just an assortment of dual lands and fetches. Well, and that's the thing, is yeah. you, you kind of have to push this out to four colors. Yeah. You've said a number of times about how Legacy basically starts as a three-color format right. and splashes a fourth. I think it does, not everyone agrees with me. I know, but I happen to agree with you, and I think it, that's where you draw the line with this card. I, Do you add this to well, an existing three-color deck that happens to have all the same creature types? No. You don't you don't want or need to. Mm-hmm. The ability... And the, and the other, my other criticism is that the ability to make spells counterable is only rarely applicable in Vintage. You use the example of Avon Mind Sensor, but I think it's the best one in the modern decks. Yeah. But far more often in Vintage, creatures get plowed or bounced than they do getting countered. Modern Vintage control decks have four Force of Wills that will absolutely counter a creature every now and then. But what else have they got? They've got Spell Pierce, which can't counter a creature. Fluster Storm, Misstep. I mean, these spells, you these counter spells. Activate a Stormscape Apprentice ability with this. <laughs> things like that. uh, that's a good example. If you you could put Grim Lava Mancer into an otherwise Bant deck with something like this, oh, but you yeah, can't activate it. So I just think it constrains you far more than it opens you up. And the thing that it does in making creatures uncounterable rarely is going to be the differentiator in Vintage, and only occasionally in Legacy. So what are the wizards that you can build this? So there's Dark Confidant, Stop, uh, Snapcaster, Jeez, um, I don't know. I have humans open in front of me right now. I'm almost thinking... There, there are zillions, though. The uh, Void Mage click. Apprentice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of options. It's not so much about the options being limited. You could build a synergistic quote-unquote tribal deck with this, no problem. It's, it's easy to list off popular creatures that already overlap, as we've done. Yeah. But I think your deck becomes worse by by what you have to cut or and change. And you can't play Noble Hierarch, which if you play Wizards. Right. And it makes it difficult to play Days. Oh, yeah. Makes it impo- almost impossible to cast a Brainstorm in Legacy <laughs> if, if you're all only these. But I, I think the trend's been towards mental misstep in, in any way. Yeah, you but I don't want. But you can't. Well, you, that doesn't apply to legacy, though. Sorry, we're getting hung up on legacy yeah. versus vintage. In vintage, I agree with you completely. This this card happens to follow the mental misstep trend in non-blue aggro decks pretty well. But <laughs> ironically, as soon as you start playing this card in vintage, you probably want to think about starting to play blue, though, because yep. <laughs> you just want to add more colors. So, this card is all over the place. We haven't even seen the whole set yet. So maybe there are some more humans in in Avacyn Restored that help out. I think you guys and I both agree that this card is playable, obviously, but the question is, to what amount? And if I had to put numbers on it in vintage top eights in terms of appearances, I think this is very low. I think this is similar to Gristlebrand. I'm going to say four. Yeah, I'm pretty confident in four for this. It'll show up in some fringe decks. Maybe Natmoz puts together a Wizards deck that has red wizards in it or green wizards in it I don't know uh, but what do you think how many top 8s for the cavern it's really hard to predict because I I can't really make a prediction an accurate prediction without sort of looking what the possible configurations are which I'm trying to do on the fly here it's but, hard to do it's very hard to do but I, I am struck that um th- there does seem to be a disjuncture between wizards and humans and there's yeah. and th- you need to get sort of both of those together it's it's worth pointing out, and some people might be screaming at their iPods right now, saying you don't have to only play with one creature type. It's true. You could play... For example, Folly is a human. Yeah. But that takes out Dark Confidant, that takes out, you know... Well, well no. Uh, Dark Confidant's also human. He's human wizard, I think. I'm sorry, you're right. Uh, the... 
right? That takes out Vendillion, Click, takes out even the Mind Sensor. There's a lot of these creatures that are not human. Yeah, a lot of the good ones are not human. You can reasonably play one of these on turn one and name wizard or human, I mean, and play your noble hierarch, mm-hmm. and then play another one on turn two and name core, and and get access then to a, a broad range. Tapping yes. one for a color and but one you, for colorless. You have to play you have to name Lorgoyf. Yeah, I mean, right. Give me a break. Yeah. Or you run that's noble. That's the best beatdown creature option there is in vintage. Or your the rest of your lands are base green and you never use this to cast Tarmogoyf except for the colorless. Yeah, I that's, mean, that's it, a concern. It, it's a concern. It's it's more constricting than it is valuable. It doesn't open up as many doors as it closes. So I'm I not think. sure this is a four of. I hear you say four. I heard you say four. No, I said four appearances in top eights. Oh, that's what I'm, I was answering the ultimate question. How um, many appearances do you think? I think more than that. Okay, I'm gonna say more. Um, <laughs> Not thir- too many 13. more. Thirteen. Lucky number thirteen. Playing into the Innistrad theme. I see. I like that. <laughs> All right, I'm I mean, gonna I'm make sure to say that. But again, it's it's difficult for me to make an accurate prediction without having a more concrete sense of. What the possible configurations of creatures along these these tribal lines are? I agree completely. It's it. Our predictions are still heavily influenced by not having tried to build all the decks necessarily. Yeah. But I believe that my criticisms are irrespective of how many great creature types there really are to choose. I just think if you cut yourself off of these other spells, you're hurting yourself more than you're helping. See, that's that's where I disagree. I guess we can we can we can uh, sort of. Hone in our disagreement. I think that the, the key concern for me is how can you configure the, the various disruptive and card advantage creatures? Yeah. I'm not concerned about not being a play brainstorm. Um, really? Okay. I mean, the, the one spell that I am concerned about is Source to Plow Shares. That's yeah. the one I'm most concerned about. But again, I mean, there are, there are substitutes for those sorts of things. There are creatures that can do sorts of I mean, if you could play Tide Hole of Sculler and, you know, like CIP creatures that exile. And then, you know, I don't know. I don't know if there's a good one. There's a white there's a, a white creature from one of the recent sets that looks like Baseless Butcher. If yeah, the Fiend Hunter. He costs three, though. Yeah, if that, but see, if you can make that uncounterable, then three casting costs is playable. Interesting. I see so, your point. So, I, I think there may be cards that are marginal, but if you, that's why... I'm not a fan of Aven Mind Sensor, but if you could tell me Aven Mind Sensor is uncounterable, I'm in. I mean, I am in. So let's let's spin this issue a little bit differently, then. What creature do you think is the biggest winner from this card in think, Vintage? I think these, these three casting. I mean, even mind sensor it definitely springs to mind because you don't you don't need to invest in any resources to protect it. Yeah. You, know, you don't have to proceed it with a duress. You don't have to or protect it with a red blast. You can just be confident that you're going to catch their fetch land and and when they or try to go to activate it, and they yeah. have five force of wills in hand. And yeah, <laughs> interesting. Five. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then there's nothing they could do. So I think I think also Vendillion Click is a big winner here. Oh, Vendillion Click. Yeah, I mean. Uh, because that card is what, 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 highly mean, disruptive in and of itself. What, what creatures are the most likely to be countered if you put them on the stack? I think really early, uh, really early. Uh, that's funny. Thalia. Really early Thalia. Yeah, as a good example. It's Thalia, according. No, it's 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 Thalia. Oh, so you're right. It's Thalia. The, the, yeah, the, I was the, the one. Pronunciation guide. The pronunciation. Yeah, <laughs> I was the one who thought, who jumped to the conclusion Thalia. that it was Thalia, and I was wrong. But I think Thalia is a good example of one who's likely to be forced. Um, sure. Turn one Thalia. Uh, Certain situations, Kataki. Yeah. Late game Goifs sometimes get forced. Yes. Um, Trigon Predator. I think that creatures... Trigon <laughs> Predator do get forced. Oh, yeah. They could. I think that it's hilarious to try and think of what the most force of willed creature in Vintage is. It's probably right. Vendillion Click. Yeah, Just, that's a good point. When you but, think about when it comes up in games... It's a wizard, but not a human. That's a concern. Right. It's a wizard. doesn't have a second type. 
wizard um, uh, fairy, fairy wizard, of course. Fairy, it's a fairy wizard. Said, yeah. <clears throat> Um, but but I, d- I do think that Avon Blind Sensor is a super forcible. Oh, that reminds me. Joe Brown can rebuild his fairy deck, and they're all uncounterable <laughs> now. <laughs> Spellstutter sprites uncounterable. <laughs> Incredible. But, uh, Incredible. Unfortunately, this land doesn't let you play spells that are not creatures that have that type, so you can't play uncounterable Bitter Blossom with it, mm. which... Would really be something. Yeah, Flick is a fairy wizard. <laughs> or Thoughtseize. Uncounterable Thoughtseize. Ooh. Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they make this card so that it can cast any card of the creature type what you choose? What is Thoughtseize besides sorcery? Uh, tribal. Sorcery? Yeah. Wow. Wait, no it's not. If it were tribal sorcery, it would power up Goyf even no, more. No, you're right. I'm thinking of... I'm mixing up two cards. I'm, I'm thinking of Bitter Blossom combined with the the... Tarfire. I'm, I'm mixing up Bitter Blossom yeah. and Tarfire. Yeah. But still, the point is made that it it seems yeah. to me they should have just allowed this card to cast tribal cards as well. What's why not? What's the harm? Yeah. <laughs> Uncounterable Bitter Blossom? That never went wrong, did it? Oh, jeez. Well, so I think we should uh, wrap this up with... But Avon Mind Sensor, I think, is a card that's huge. I mean, that card always gets countered. It's good. I remember good. that card getting countered. And, and it's just too expensive. I mean, you have to... It's not like you can... It used to be you could slip that card in before the drain or the force came online. Mm-hmm. I mean, sorry, it didn't used to be. That that was the goal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> disrupt them such that they don't have the mana for yeah. drain, at least. And you don't have to worry about that now. Play I mean, Gedok Teague first so they can't force. Yeah, <laughs> Something I mean, like so that. You don't have to worry about that now. You can, you can, when they go to play Tinker, you can respond with, with Avon Mind Sensor with certainty, yeah. knowing that their Tinker is now countered. I'll tell you, Avon Mind Sensor is a bird wizard. So yes. you will have almost certainly named wizard first. Because if you name Bird, the the jig is up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just thinking that this card has a very interesting skill-slash-bluff aspect to it as well. (laughs) Imagine, I'm I'm thinking, imagine you have a deck that is very clearly a human's or wizard's deck, and you play one of these on turn one, and you name human or wizard, and you go about your business, and your opponent is expecting it. And then on turn four, you play a second one, and you name Fairy. You might not have any fairies in your deck, <laughs> but now your opponent has to respect something like Vendillion Click. Yeah. yeah, you named Snake, and now your opponent's thinking: Is he playing Mystic Snake? What what snake is he playing? Right. That That's would be funny. hilarious. That's uh, funny. What's the, what's ma- the if, I'm, I'm, cost? Paceless Butcher. What is that guy? Fiend Hunter. Fiend white Hunter. white one. That would be that would be interesting. He's, he's almost certainly a human, possibly something else. I'm, I'm telling you right now, for all of you people who are excited about this card and planning to build a four or five color creature deck, practice what your tertiary <laughs> creature type in the mid game is going to be, because I guarantee you, you if you play long enough with this card, you're going to make your opponent make a bad play because they're playing around some card you don't have. Think about all the creatures with flash that you could be playing, like even Mind Sensor, Snapcaster Mage. If you're not playing, it is a good one. For for my uh, set review for Eternal Central, I'll try and figure out what the best permutation is of creatures. So okay. be on the lookout for my article. On y- yeah, you and lots of other people will be doing that, I think. so. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to wrap up this set review then with which card we think is the biggest winner for Vintage, at least. And I guess the answer is going to be the same for Legacy as well. But uh, I'm pretty comfortable that Temporal Mastery is the Vintage poster child for this set. Do you feel any differently? Well, I think it depends on, on what, what can be done with, with Cavern of Souls. Um, it, it depends on just how strong the, the, again, 
the assortment of uh, creatures can be jammed together because mm-hmm. if it can be done right, that that would that would potentially surpass temporal mastery. Interesting. Temporal mastery is definitely the, the answer for legacy, but uh, interesting. I think <laughs> just Cavern of Souls is one of those cards that has such potential and yet has these stark limitations. Another interesting feature of that card is it only gets better over time. They're going to continue to print more creatures, obviously. More synergistic or disruptive creatures are going to come out over time. Imagine if we'd had this discussion this time last year. We wouldn't have had Snapcaster Mage or Delver to point to. The discussion would have been very different in terms of the veracity of wizard or human as a creature type. (laughs) Think about that. I mean... Well, seriously, a lot of the creatures we're talking about have only come out in the last couple of years, and no, this card I, I agree. I mean, is only going to get better. There has definitely been a trend towards printing more of and, disrupted bear. And Thalia. So, I mean, we've covered yeah. the whole bear disruption trend for a long time, but recent events mean that this card gets much better with the human type because of Innistrad. I agree with that. I just wish that this thing would be sorted out one way or the other. <laughs> it seems like the creatures and tribes has been such a mess in the last couple of years. I know they've been... Yeah trying to figure that all out. If you start your exercise, I suggest looking first for the creatures that are humans and wizards. I would look first at human wizard and put those in a column in the center and then look at what the tertiary or the secondary for human and wizard individually are because I think that's where their money's all at. It will be hilarious to see if people can come up with just obscure tribal style decks that no one can think of. Spell shapers. This card casts every spell shaper. Ever printed? I mean, this card keep Not spell shaper. Uh, changeling. I meant to say yeah. shapeshifter. I mean, this I card casts every goblin, every elf, blah blah blah. Oh, that's another thing. Uh, uncounterable goblin lackey on turn one, and that could have cast Tarfire, but it can't. So this card <laughs> is definitely going to see play in Legacy. Well, I mean, it's not it, as though goblins is a deck right now, but if the why wouldn't it be? If, if well, you, the point is, it's not today. It's not right. But if so the that, lackey becomes uncounterable, then exactly. I mean, in elves, you can play combo elves. Yep, that's another deck that people have been talking about. Elves. I mean, good luck. I don't think that just because Lackey is uncounterable, similar to Vintage, in, in this modern metagame in Legacy, your opponent goes, Caverns Lackey, ha-ha, can't counter that, and then they go, Island Delver, go. <laughs> and you look and go, oh, great. I kill your Delver and attack you, and the next turn they play a Goyf, and you go, ta-ha. <laughs> it's just, you don't, it's not quite as sexy as it was right. back in the day when there were lots, lots fewer one-drops being played. Anyway, I think that Temporal Mastery is the thing. I think that Caverns will be played. It'll be a niche card. It might get a lot better over time as more humans come out. Who knows? We've got 100-plus cards to go in this set. There could That's be right. some killer humans still <laughs> that we haven't seen. Any further thoughts on Avacyn? We will cover any additional cards that are unspoiled, obviously, in future podcasts. Well, I think it's uh, an exciting set. Wizards has done a good job of creating some spice, uh-huh. some intriguing, fascinating options. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how people balance out the concerns of Miracle. Sort of um, how, what the ratios are based upon desire to see but not draw. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you can't cram too many miracles in a deck because once you get up above, say, 8 to 10, <laughs> you're just going to reliably have one in your opening hand, and that's going to be awful. I do. I do. Uh, uh, I see a lot of potential in the set, but it's not clear to me 
sort of where things will ultimately shape up. Granted, we I only have, have. I have a much better sense of, of, of cards in the in a process and in less less this. Yeah. Well, we'll get back to it as the next the rest of the set comes out and see. There's probably going to be at least one more card we need to talk about. I'd like to raise one critique of the the title of this. Avicen restored. Yeah. I, I have some Go on. <laughs> permit, permit me to go off on a rant here. <laughs> but I have a little bit of an issue with the, the name of this set. You know, I I really look back fondly on the days when magic sets were sort of iconically named, you know, and, and sort of flavorful at the same time, like Legends of the Dark or Fallen Empires. Ice Age. Yeah, I mean, Ice Age is, is iconic and yeah. descriptive and and everything you want there to be in a, in a set. I mean, I, I, I think that uh, one of my favorite set names is Invasion. Yeah. It's descriptive. Active. It's thematic. It's active. Yeah. It's, you know, it makes you curious about the product. And yet it also describes the world in, this, in which you, you come to explore. Mm-hmm. You know, and then over time, uh, I think the set names have become more uh, enigmatic and unclear in their meaning. And the turning point was Mirrodin. I think that's right, because the previous sets were Odyssey, Torment, Judgment, Onslaught, Legion, Scourge. You know, active words that were not ref- that weren't not proper nouns. Yeah, in- improper nouns. Yeah. They, they, and then, uh, then you have uh, Mirrodin. You know, uh, and then you have uh, the next two sets are sort of in between. You know, yeah. Dark Steel and Fifth Dawn. They're not referring. They are referring to something specific, but they they're also general. To they're still not, general, right? Not familiar with it. And then you have you know. Uh, champions of Kamigawa, Betrayers of Kamigawa. Hard, hard to be more specific than that. <laughs> right. You don't know, necessarily know what Kamigawa is, but you know it's not as mysterious as Mirrodin. I mean, what is mysterious? Mirrodin? Is it a person, a place, a yeah. weapon, a yeah. thing? Animal, vegetable, a, or mineral? <laughs> an idea? Yeah. <laughs> a philosophy? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's nothing there to tell you what it is. Um, at least champions of Kamigawa, well, these, these champions, it's an exciting thing. I mean, champions are sort of like heroes, right? Yeah, right? And Kamigawa, you know, is going to be either a place, an order, a nation, you know, something. To be clear, you're talking about all, only what you can glean from the words themselves. Yeah, I mean, I like the old, the the original set titles. I mean, Arabian Nights is obviously very specific to a story. Right. The 1000. They quickly backpedaled on that approach. Right. <laughs> Legends, the dark. Antiquities. Antiquities. They're sort of uh, thematic words mm-hmm. that refer to fantasy themes um, and give you some hint of what may be contained in the set without mood. being too specific. Yeah, they give you a sense of mood, uh, maybe place, and, and I, a general idea. But then we get these very specific things like Mirrodin, as you pointed out, the turning point, Zendikar, uh, and Lorwyn. Now, Lorwyn I, I have less of a problem with because I think you point out that Lorwyn does recall some sort of place because of the... It's a Tolkien-esque word, and therefore I think a lot of people, in our culture at least, infer a lot based on just the the phonemes and the spelling. <laughs> well, I, w- I mean, I would have preferred the name of that set to be something like the Tribes of Lorwyn. You know, it's, it's less mysterious. It gives you more of a theme. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more active. I don't know, because that was a tribal set, right? Right. I think it's very appropriate in that case. Um, you know, and... I, I think this is the worst set title I've ever seen. Not only do you have Avicenne, which I have no idea what that is, um, but it's being restored. Okay, uh-huh. so, so I mean, you know, Mirrodin besieged. You might not know what Mirrodin is, but if you, but at least Mirrodin, there was a previous set called Mirrodin. So you're like, okay, this thing's being besieged that I know what it is. Uh-huh. 
Or in Rise of Eldrazi, you don't, it seems to me you don't really need to know what the Eldrazi is because you're being told this is their rise. This is their emergence. This is the beginning of it. You know, but here, Avacyn restored. I mean, none of the previous sets are called Avacyn. It's like, you know, Return of the Jedi, but you don't even know what the Jedi are. <laughs> it's like, how could they return when you don't know, know what's going on? Return so, of Emperor Palpatine? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whose name has never been uttered. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the, the first Star Wars film was called The Return of Emperor Palpatine. <laughs> I mean, it's so ridiculous. It's it's doubly obfuscating. I mean, I think that you, you not only do you have a world like Zendikar, Lorwyn, or Mirrodin in the name, which you know nothing about, mm-hmm. at least with Kamigawa, you know it's sort of an Eastern theme thing, and then you have this champions in front of it, so you know it's not necessarily a philosophy or an idea, but it's a place or an order yeah. or a nation or something. Here, not only are we introducing this thing called Avacyn, but it's being restored? Well, what happened to it? <laughs> What's going on? It's being restored from what? I mean, when I think of restored, I the first thing I think about is, frankly, is like the restoration of the, you know, the French or British monarchy after the Glorious Revolution. I thought you were going to say an old car. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the second thing I think of. Like, this old house. We're restoring, rehabbing, <laughs> rehabbing. <laughs> I'm going to make a magic set. It's going to be 56 Ford restored. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I have, I mean, like, at least with the other sets, you're like, well, what the heck is that thing? I guess we'll find out. Now it's like, what the heck is this thing? And then why the heck is it being restored? Or what yeah. does that even mean? It's like super confusing, uh, not interesting, you know. Give me those iconic names like Invasion yeah. or whatever. And if you want to give me brand, if you're trying to brand something, at least give me something else. Not that's not restored. I mean, introduce it first. <laughs> How about Avacyn the Great and her minions or something? I don't know. Give me a, you know, give me a set name that introduces the thing before the next set is called Avacyn Restored. Well, I I don't exactly share your criticism in full, but I can acknowledge that it is it is a little vague. I mean, it's simply that there hasn't been anything that referred to Avacyn in a set name before. We had Innistrad, yes. Dark Ascension, exactly. and now Where this person this person out? comes up. It is a little it's pretty unprecedented I mean, in terms of I set get, names. Like, you know, was it Urza Saga? Urza's was the next Legacy. Destiny. Yeah, then Urza's, Urza's Destiny. Destiny. Yeah. You get like, a, uh, there's a theme. So there's Innistrad. Okay, there's this land called Innistrad. Then Dark Ascension, which I don't even know what that has to do with. It's like whatever. the dark. <laughs> yeah, whatever. It's it's cool and, you know, sound name. It's like dark, dark and darker. But, <laughs> <laughs> dark Ascension, I don't even know what that means. I mean, mm. that to me is, I have no idea what that's even talking about. <laughs> Whatever I can, uh-huh. I can, I know what the word dark. I know what ascension means. It's like fifth dawn. I don't know what it specifically means, but I get that it's it's referring okay. to something. But the third set is Avacyn restored mm-hmm. after Innistrad and Dark Ascension. What the heck does that have to do with anything? I mean, there seems to be no superficial relation. And you, as you point out, there are a couple cards in the previous two sets that refer to Avacyn. Yeah, and there's flavor text. But I mean, give me a break. That's the worst <laughs> set title I have I've ever seen from a Magic set. Ever. Well, I hope that some Watsi folks are listening and they'll take this as market research. <laughs> I don't share your criticism exactly, although I do understand some of your, your basic points. And, and I do agree that this one is a little more obtuse and you can't glean quite as much from it. The word restored is not nearly as good of an action word as all the other action words we've had. Right. Urza's saga. Now, a saga, yeah. that's a good action yeah, word. You know, or That's exactly the point. You don't need to know 
who Urza is. You know there's a saga, and it's about this person or this thing or this idea. Yeah. You know, so it's somewhat descriptive. And champions of Kamigawa. You don't know what Kamigawa is, but you know that there are these champions of this play. Of, it's of it's play. much more evocative. It's much more evocative. Yeah. It's much more meaning. You have a much clearer sense of what this might mean. Betrayers is a good word. Yeah, betrayers of Kamigawa. Again, you know what this... You don't know exactly what Kamigawa is, but you have some idea. Yeah. Avacene restored. I have no idea what they even mean by restored. Restored is probably you could restore a house. You could restore an order. You could restore our king. It's probably the wimpiest action word they've ever used in a set name. I, I, I can't think of one that's weaker. That's what it's called. Revived. I mean, like, <laughs> and I don't even, I don't even know what Avacene is. So why would I care that it's being restored? I mean, it's well, there's where I disagree with you, though, because you you are not the sort of person to to, in advance, read into the lore as, as but much. But isn't this supposed to be for everyone? I mean, aren't these sets supposed to be open? For, I mean, shouldn't a person who's never, ever played or even seen Magic before look at the product title and go, oh, this is interesting? Well, you know? on, on the surface, I would agree with you. I would say that they're counting on more people than, than you are than you're giving them credit for having participated in other marketing and being more aware of the brand. Avacyn has been well publicized as a character, and her did a poor job. Her circumstances <laughs> in terms of where job. she was during Innistrad and Dark Ascension, more so, have been referred to in a number of different media. So, I think you're not giving them quite enough credit for having disseminated the name and the story as much. I mean, do you read magic books? Uh, do you do you go I mean, to their website I, and read the flavor articles? You know, I think it's, it goes it goes back to like. What if what if uh, legends had been named Nickel Bolas and his legendary friends, <laughs> <laughs> or, or fallen empires had been called the fall of Icacia, yeah, or the fall of Homeridia? You know, what I mean, like, I I understand the, the, the and I can make I think you can make exceptions like Ravnica City of Guilds. You might not know what Ravnica <laughs> is, but you know it's a city of guilds. You know, there's tribes involved. It's yeah. a city, and it sounds kind of intriguing. You know, but but you know Zendikar and Lorwyn and. And uh, what's the third Mirrodin? Yeah. They just tell you nothing about what the heck is going those, on. Those are pretty pretty obtuse. They're, They're pretty very weak. Obfuscating. Yeah. And and uh, this is to me is the worst of all because not only do you not the the, the word Avicen has never been used in a previous set name before, it's never clearly identified, mm-hmm. nor is it intuitive what it is. Now it's being restored, so it's it's now not only do you have to ask what the heck is Avicen, but why the heck is it being restored, and what happened to it yeah. that it had to be restored. <laughs> I think that the days of good, broadly termed magic sets are are long over. Because Dark, of branding, yeah, because of branding. Dark Ascension is probably the most vague you're going to get in a long time. But it, but at least I can deal with it because I know what those words mean. I know what dark is. I know right. what Ascension is. But we are talking about the third set in a block. And these blocks, yeah. the three block sets... Which would be okay cycles, if one of the uh, previous sets na- had the word Avacene in it. Well, but my point is that there's a whole brand arc and a narrative that's going on. And and a lot of people already... There's a lot of material made available to the community that, <laughs> that supports that arc. Well, that's what <laughs> I was asking. Lots of people know Avacene. I've never heard of it before. I mean, I guess there's a, <laughs> well, obviously, it's obviously an angel. You obviously well, I mean, glazed over Avacyn's Pilgrim in yeah, your set review. Avacyn's Pilgrim tell you that there's an angel called Avacyn. <laughs> I'm just saying that's one example of there a number of things that are out there. Lands. I mean, what are there people who pilgrim to angels? Have you ever heard of that before? Well, I don't know <laughs> any angels. An angel? Personally, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's a good thing, Kevin. I'd be concerned if you did. <laughs> I was just thinking back to. Uh, we should have a contest. 
contest to see who can come up with the funniest alternate legends name. Like, like, like Jacques Levert's Fine Day Out. <laughs> Some obscure thing. Robert's Unusual Day. Yeah. Yeah. How about, how about, how about Bolas and Tetsuo's Unusual Adventure? <laughs> yeah. Exciting adventure. That's right. Oh, there's so many ways they could have failed in that set name, and Legends, I think, is pretty pretty even keel. I do enjoy and long for the days of simply evocative set names. Yes. I really like Bring Tempest, it. I think, is a good name. Oh, yeah. Invasion. Yeah. Apocalypse. Mirage. I mean, and even like things like Time Spiral, it's not necessarily like strictly evocative, like, mm-hmm. like Mirage or Tempest. But it's action oriented. It's you know it, it can. Yeah. It's broad and you know. Encompassing. I just realized there's a really good analog to Avicen not being mentioned. It's Weatherlight, Mirage Visions Weatherlight. You know what though? But weather and light are two words I know. But it's not two words. It's Weatherlight with no yeah, space. I understand. But when a person reads it, they go Weatherlight. Okay, I know those words. You know, it's, it's to uh, me it's, it's like fifth dawn. I think that's a pretty thin basis it's for like, saying that's understandable. Well, dark steel. Dark steel is one word I, in the set name. I think dark steel is another example. I know example. what dark, I know what steel is, and to me, that's sort but, of like, ooh, this is a metallic world that's maybe dark, and maybe there's like these, you know, <laughs> like evil, evilish automatons. Yeah, it, we, well, like the world of Metropolis from Fritz Lang's movie, maybe I, something like that. You know, a dystopian world of robots. You know, that's that's something. You know, that's maybe what comes. To well, mind. I agree that Avicen has no meaning, and that dark and steel and weather and light do have some meaning, right. but. I that's pretty that, flimsy. I, I mean, they don't mean the things that you think they mean. Weather light has nothing to do with the fun. weather I mean, and some spiral, brightness. Time spiral doesn't necessarily have to do with time spiraling. You know, it doesn't. I mean, yeah, okay, it does a little bit, but more so than weather light does. To. I'm just saying, it doesn't yeah. have to. And, well, I think that if you look back in time, <laughs> you might have been similarly upset about weather light. This is the most confounding. The most confounding. I mean, because you've got a word that I've never heard before, or I've yeah. heard like only in reading a couple card names mm-hmm. and then it's being restored and, and a, rest- a restoration means that something's happened to it yeah it's the it's the worst <laughs> well we'll see where they go from here we already know that we're returning to Ravnica so uh, <laughs> we'll see So, Kevin, I know you were busy last week and we wanted to podcast. Yeah, we're sorry doing, about that. Doing things like work and hanging out with your wife. Yeah, I know. It happens. Stop being so lazy. <laughs> well, I asked you if you wanted to see a Three Stooges movie with me this week. And I said, not ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I have to confess, I'm not a fan of the Three Stooges, but I listened to an NPR interview and, with the Farrelly Brothers, and I liked their movie, Something About Mary, and I liked, I think they did Me, Myself, and Irene, sure. and their movie, Dumb and Dumber, is hilarious. <laughs> so I thought I'd go see it, and boy, was it bad. Yeah. <laughs> I, I regretted seeing that movie. <laughs> um, but this you know, leads to a, a question that we sometimes talk about, is what do you think is the funniest movie of all time? Well, Steve, I know your answer because I've witnessed don't, you. Don't give it away. I've witnessed you in the presence of this movie, and it is a thing to behold. <laughs> well, one of the things that we, we that we did a couple of years ago is I uh, on our team website. I said, "What is the greatest film of all time?" Uh-huh. And I like I gave people like two minutes to respond. I said, "How can you guys not? Uh, how can you vote for anything but Borat?" <laughs> <laughs> So, so I, I have Netflix. I don't know, Kevin. I don't know if you know how it works, but Netflix basically gives you an option after you've seen a movie to rate it. I do. Yep. And I do. The, you, I do rate that. It's like the five star options. Mm-hmm. You can go from hated it to didn't like it 
to liked it, which is three stars, mm-hmm. to really liked it, and to loved, loved it. it. Yep. And I, te- I typically uh, uh, tend to rate stars, you know, movies in the middle. Mm-hmm. So I'm very, very cautious about giving a movie a five star or a one star. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I really loved it, I give it five star. If I hate it, I give it one star and, and everything in between. So there are a few movies that I've given, comedies I've given five stars. In the following, I've given Caddyshack, My Cousin Vinny, Dumb and Dumber, The Other Guys. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't. Oh, Mark Wahlberg. It's hilarious. Okay. Uh, Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore, Oh Brother, Where Out Thou, Meet the Parents, As Good As It Gets, Groundhog Day, The Truman Show, Knocked Up, Wedding Crashers, What About Bob, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, (laughs) Borat, and Snatch. So those are the films I've given five stars. And Borat only because they wouldn't let you give it a six. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Borat is so brilliant. Uh, But the the thing that's interesting about this question is that, you know, films like Oh Brother, Where Out Thou come up, or... Uh, as good as it gets. Mm-hmm. I mean, those aren't really like hilarious movies. They're, they're not. They're not laugh out loud funny all the uh, very much. But they're they're labels comedies. When I ask people what's the f- the funniest movie of all time, a lot of people will say movies like I don't know, like um, like uh, some of the nineteen um, eighty like Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters, Starship Caddyshack. Troopers. People say Starship Troopers a lot. Really? To me, I mean, I, to me, those are funny movies. Yeah. But they're not the most funniest because. The, those films are not designed to make you laugh as much as you possibly can. <laughs> they have too much plot to yeah. do that. I mean, Starship Troopers... Groundhog Day. Groundhog Day. I mean, it's a funny movie. And I think what's happening is people are confusing the question of what's the greatest comedy of all time yeah. versus what's the funniest movie of all time. Yeah. And I think because there's a difference between great movies and funniest movies. So there can be movies that are really, really funny and are mediocre films. Sure. And there can be money... There like can be, Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> yeah, or the Fletch movies. Yeah. <laughs> or there can be films that are really good films, mm-hmm. like Snatch, and just funny. Ghostbusters. Not, Ghostbusters. But aren't... Like, classic film, but aren't necessarily the funniest movies. Right. To me, the char- number one criteria for the funniest movie of all time, and tell me what you think, the funniest movie, is the number of laughs per second or frame. I think that's... I prefer a- second because some <laughs> films have different number of frames per second. <laughs> that's... That's hilariously analytical. You don't want to get caught up in frame conversions for this metric. Right. Because older films have fewer frames per second, so. (laughs) (laughs) And when they switch to digital, I mean, the whole thing. (laughs) I mean, I had to reevaluate my worldview. So so what is is the funniest movie in terms of laughs per... I have a real hard time with this because I I simply can't remember the quantity of laughter very well the first time I saw something. And my my response to movie changes so much over time. And I'm the sort of person who watches movies multiple repeatedly. times yeah and you have an emotional connection to certain genres of films of and times and places so it's hard for you to disconnect but i think the most i remember myself laughing during a movie was during south park when i first saw it in the theater yeah i laughed raucously wheezing and not being able to breathe and missing lines and i know you feel the same way about borat oh but... my god when i saw borat <laughs> i laughed so hard i thought i was gonna puke everyone around me was laughing so hard i think i saw it opening night yeah i mean the, the film was just so brilliant at getting people's you know it duping people and then they sort of express their prejudices and right. everything else it was such a great culturally incisive film it was brilliant in you that know, regard it didn't have necessarily the you know it didn't have the raw it did have a lot of raunch but didn't have the same kinds of you know approaches that dumb and dumber had right 
but to me, I think you can kind of think about like great films oftentimes have great plots. You know, whereas a lot of the great comedies have terrible plots or no plots at all. I mean, right. Dumb and Dumber's plot is irrelevant. Right. You know, Groundhog Day's plot is super important. So, yeah, it's, it's critical. And, and the jokes in, <laughs> in, a, in the typical SNL alum crowd from the 70s and 80s, they have heavily plot-driven films, you know, and you were relying on just their character to make the scenes funny. It's very interesting to think about that, because the, the, the 70s and 80s set SNL alum films are so different from the 90s Oh, absolutely, SNL yeah, the, the like Billy the, Madison. Like the, like the uh, Adam Sandler and, uh, and Chris Farley films. Yeah, totally different animal. Totally different animals from the sort of Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase Films. Steve Martin, Steve yeah. Martin, Steve Martin films. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so plot driven, so plot driven, and you're so just relying on their character in any given scenario to be right. funny. That's those are the height in terms of my enjoyment of comedy. Those are the height, but I fully recognize your criteria that those films don't necessarily make me laugh out loud all the time. Well, when I was thinking, I'm just about, filled with this general this, sense exactly. of mirth. <laughs> like I watch exactly. I watch. I watch films with you, and sometimes I feel like you know you'll be chuckling, chuckling under your breath, yeah. or you'll be like you know just enjoying the exactly the it's sense just, of mirth. You're right. just enjoying the in, the whole thing, the right. procedure, the process. Whereas for me. I'm not really, really, really enjoying it unless I have a belly raucous <laughs> laugh. Like I want to be, I want to be crying and screaming and feeling like I'm gagging. Yep. Laughter, yep. But which which makes me think maybe it's not the quantity of laughs per second over the course of the film, the density of laughs in the, the peaks. For its, the peaks or the intensity of the laughs. Right. So it's not like quantity versus intensity. But then I thought, you know, intensity is somewhat a function of quantity, a frequency, because. One of the things that, that Borat does so well, it's not that any given scene is so funny. It's that the, how they build the jokes on top of each other. Right. So you're in this absurd situation, and then you keep laughing and laughing and laughing because it just there is a sequence of funny things. It doesn't <laughs> let up. Whereas some of the great films that are comedies but aren't necessarily the funniest films, mm-hmm. they have periods where they're not funny. Exposition. Exposition, character development, you know, moments like there'll be times in Caddyshack where it's they're just standing around. It's mm-hmm. not, no. There's a love story in Caddyshack. <laughs> exactly. <That's laughs> not not so in Borat. Yeah. <laughs> Unless yeah. you count the whole... No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I, I think, you know, th- there are probably like 50 films that I've rated four stars sure. that are hilarious, like Anchorman, you know, Friday, Anchorman you, you, you name it. But those aren't five-star films for me because although I think I really like them, mm-hmm. I didn't love them yeah. because they weren't hysterical or they weren't great films. They were really good films, but they yeah. weren't great films, you know? So it's like, when I ask this question, it's funny how people give me all different kinds of answers because they're not answering the specific question I want to know, which is, yeah. which film has the greatest number of laughs per, per second? Yeah. They're answering the questions like you're asking, well, I really have a fondness for the 80s and that whole genre, or I yeah. really have a fondness for the general, you know, mood that's created out of the film, right. or whatever, you know? To me personally, though, I think the funniest... TV show is Curb Your Enthusiasm. I love situational comedy. Yeah. I love Larry David. Yeah. I love, I, I, lo- I think it hits the right cultural moment. So I think Sasha Baron Cohen and Larry David are the funniest two human beings alive. <laughs> <laughs> Either in terms of being funny themselves or in creating comedy. Right. I mean, they might not be as talented as, say, Jim Carrey in terms of, situ- in terms of like, you know, physical slapstick. Yeah. They may not be as, as as funny as Steve Martin in terms of like witticisms. Uh-huh. They might not be as funny as Bill Murray in terms of dry humor. Right. But I think their their comedic brilliance is outshines the rest. Yeah. So I'm curious what other people think. What is the funniest film you've ever seen? 
and think specifically in terms of laughs, laughs per second. Right. <laughs> or laughs per frame if you're willing to do the conversion. <laughs> <laughs> and of course the answer is Borat. <laughs> yeah, but no, no buttering up to the judge allowed. <laughs> So why don't we leave with the question for the week, for the podcast? So, on a magical front, I think we should probably simply ask about what is your favorite card from Addison Restored? Obviously, by the time you're listening to this, you'll probably know another hundred cards more than we do, and maybe it's one that we don't know about. So maybe you might want to answer it in terms of the ones we've reviewed, or maybe we missed one that's already spoiled. But uh, And if you'd like us to review another one, let us know, and we'll consider it for next time. Oh, yeah. By all means, respond to us on Twitter if you want to hear about another card, and we'll be playing catch-up with whatever isn't spoiled so far in our next podcast, I'm sure. And our Twitter account is at ManyInsanePlays. Or you can email us at SoManyInsanePlaysPodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, as always, we wish you Many Insane Plays. Many Insane Plays.